This episode is brought to you by Thorn, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements... The tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the products do what they say they're going to do on the label. And then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now, Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s, where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not I have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, 
you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Chad Robichaud and Azizullah Aziz. Now, Chad is a former law enforcement officer, but spent most of his career as a Marine, ultimately working in a unique specialty role within Marine Recon. Once in Afghanistan, he was assigned Aziz as his interpreter, and as you will hear, they served eight deployments together before Chad transitioned out and ultimately Aziz's interpreter program was closed down. Fast forward a few years and we have the mass evacuation Chad assembled some incredible members of the military as written in his latest book, Saving Aziz. So we discuss a host of topics from their two individual journeys through their childhoods, the powerful story of how their lines intersected, the incredible danger our allies are in once we withdrew from Afghanistan, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it more visible for others to find. And this is a free library of well over 700 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Chad Robichaud and Azizullah Aziz. Enjoy. Well, Chad and Aziz, I want to start by saying, firstly, I'm extremely excited to read the book when it comes out. And secondly, thank you so much for coming on the Behind the Shield podcast today. Thanks. Thanks for having us on. We're excited to talk about, you know, the book and, uh, and our life together, our story. So thank you. Brilliant. Well, I'll start with you, Aziz. Where on planet Earth are we finding you today? Today, uh, you can find me in Texas, uh, Houston, Magnolia. Fantastic. And then Chad, what about yourself? Same here. I'm, I'm just down the street from Aziz. I think uh, looking at the video, Aziz is in our office right now, our Mighty Oaks uh, Foundation office where he's working. And uh, and I'm in my home office right down the road in Texas. Fantastic. Well, I would love to walk you both through your the, the beginning of your journey. So I'm sure people can tell from Aziz's accent, he's not a native Texan. So we'll start with you. So Aziz, tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Okay. Uh, my name is uh, Azizullah. Everyone calls me Aziz uh, from the childhood uh, and uh, I'm okay with that. I was born in Kabul, Afghanistan in 1983 and uh, I have uh, six brothers and three sisters. My father was... Um, uh, Mujahideen uh, battalion commander. Uh, he fought the Russians when the Russians invaded Afghanistan. And uh, after that, once the Russians left, he uh, did his uh, his own business, the car uh, sales business. And uh, on uh, my journey, 
I actually uh, self-taught myself how to uh, speak English, how to learn English. And then uh, as I was learning it, I uh, the kids noticed in the neighborhood and they asked me to teach them. And uh, by doing that, I continuously uh, uh, taught about 800 students. It was back in the 1996-99. Uh, and around 800 students graduated. At that time, uh, it was the first black era of Taliban in Kabul, Afghanistan. As I was teaching English, it was one of the evenings. Uh, this group of the Taliban that comes by uh, the businesses and close the businesses and push the people to go to the mosque for prayers. That evening, um, I didn't go to the mosque and I was just continuing with my lessons and they caught me. They tried to uh, put me in the jail. I was very young and I was boxing at that time and strong and I, I punched this Taliban guy on his face and I jumped from the uh, first floor and ran away to the neighbor's house, not knowing that this neighbor's house is also a Taliban's house. This lady, uh, she saw me, she's like, hey, are you teacher Aziz? I'm like, yes, ma'am, I'm teacher Aziz. I'm running away from the Taliban. They are behind me. Please give me um, safety here. She's like, okay, go to this bathroom. Don't worry about them. My husband is also Taliban. I'm like, damn, oh God, <laughs> I didn't want this. <laughs> she gave me refuge for a couple hours in her bathroom. The Taliban were outside. They were calling on loudspeaker. They tried to capture me. But the good thing was at that time, once you take refugee, uh, between the females, they were not coming. Uh, over there. So they left, they uh, intended to come back tomorrow, but that night I went home and I talked to my parents and uh, luckily at the end of the uh, the street that we lived in Kabul at that time, there was this human trafficking guy. He already had 39 Afghan uh, young uh, people with him uh, for uh, the purpose of leaving tomorrow, uh, like tomorrow morning to uh, Dubai. So my father told me why shouldn't you join them and just go because there's no more um, uh, uh, living opportunity here for you. Just go and find your dream and, you know, live your life and because it's not possible. So I joined this human trafficking guy. We went to Pakistan, from Pakistan to Iran, from Iran to Oman, and then finally ended up in Dubai. And in Dubai, I started uh, working for um, a Christian family as a houseboy. And, uh, you know, until uh, that time when uh, the 9-11 happened, then I told everything to this uh, Dubai immigration officer. At that time, I explained everything to them that this is how I came and I wanted to go back home and I needed their help to send me back home. But then uh, they became really interested in me because all those years that they were looking that how all these uh, immigrants without the documents coming to their country, they did not know which routes they are taking, how they are coming. So I kind of give them the whole information. They were interested to hire me over there. But then when I noticed they wanted to use me against the poor people who just came to their country to find a piece of bread and, you know, do their uh, regular uh, life. And I didn't like the idea. I told them first, home, send me home. I want to go home. I need to get married, see my family, then get a passport, send me the visa, I will come back and join you guys. As soon as they sent me to Afghanistan, I came to Kabul uh, military training center where the third special forces of uh, the US military was there. They were uh, 
building the military compound for preparing to train the Afghan National Army. And I took a test over there. Most of this test was uh, inclusive of all military terminologies, and I passed among a few hundred um, volunteers. I was the third guy who passed uh, the test, and uh, they hired me as an interpreter and worked uh, for them for one year from uh, 2002 to 2003. And then uh, I was promoted and uh, introduced to the U.S. Embassy, the Regional Security Office. They had uh, this project, it was called ATA, the Anti-Terrorism Assistance. They hired me as a chief uh, uh, interpreter over there and I ended up working for them another year from 2003 to 2004. Then, uh, according to my um, abilities and, you know, uh, they saw something in me, uh, they promoted me to this other uh, project, the JSOC Special Operation, where I met uh, Chad over there in 2004. And uh, uh, when I uh, met Chad, it was one of the mornings over there uh, that uh, I came from the house to the office. I saw Chad. Uh, I really liked him you know, very uh, well disciplined, sharp, and uh, all athletic and sportsman. And uh, as uh, we all know that he's a recon <laughs> Marine, you know, every time he likes to do this uh, recon and, you know, before uh, going anywhere, he likes to kind of do the observation and find out what's happening, find all those uh, weak spots. And we traveled to our different properties and compounds and warehouses he identified some points that the enemy could easily use and attack our uh, employees. So he took some notes with me together and then, uh, you know, uh, he prepared some plans for improvement of construction at the walls, like the container wire, like extension of the wall so that the enemy should not be able to climb on the wall in the middle of the night and easily uh, target our employees. And then we became friends. I invited him to my house and uh, he met my wife and my kids. And I noticed that he really likes the Afghan food. My wife, I asked my wife to cook him some Afghan uh, food like Kabuli Palau. It's a mixture of rice, beef and some seeds and stuff <laughs> with the natural oil. And, uh, you know, we worked together all the way uh, up to 2007 in many different missions, uh, risky operations uh, between uh, all Afghanistan and uh, most of Pakistan. And then uh, uh, Chad was uh, moved uh, into a different project from there, but uh, um, I continued doing the same thing all the way up to uh, 2016. And meanwhile, uh, you know, Chad and I, uh, we were trying, he was also trying to help me with my SIV application to help me. And we have been trying to uh, uh, process my SIV application, uh, the special immigrant visa, so I could come here to United States. But unfortunately, because I worked or I served under a classified contract in Afghanistan, the USCIS did not process my documents. They were uh, uh, regularly asking for a contract number, which was not possible for me to provide for them because the version is classified and uh, nobody can have access to that one. 
And then uh, I had to stay in Afghanistan and continuously do my work. And, uh, you know, he tried here a lot. I tried over there, but not knowing God's plan. Uh, it was God's plan that postponed it all my SIV application. And I stayed up to the very last minute, which, uh, you know, was... Uh, uh, it happened side by side with the withdrawal of the U.S. Uh, troops from Afghanistan in uh, August uh, 2021. So that was the time when Chad uh, really uh, uh, put a team together with uh, other colleagues that I worked with, and they all put their own life in risk, and they came to Afghanistan to uh, rescue me and my family, and uh, finally uh, we are here. Brilliant. Well, I mean, I'm looking forward to hearing kind of more details of that. But I want to go back to your early life, if you wouldn't mind, after the Mujahideen had defeated the Russians, before the Taliban really grabbed your, you know, your city in that case. I think a lot of people in the West have an impression of Afghanistan as this war-torn, you know, concrete jungle, as it were. Talk to me about Afghanistan when you were a young boy, before the Taliban really started getting hold. It was uh, actually, uh, uh, when I remember, it was the communist regime that the Mujahideens were fighting, the communist regime, especially the Russian army, to uh, liberate Afghanistan from them. And uh, I was very young, and I uh, went to school, and uh, uh, my daily life was consist of uh, playing in the Russian leftovers, like tanks, jeeps, and the Volgas, uh, with a bunch of kids from the neighborhood. You know, we would just go there on our free time and we would play on the Russian tanks and take off some of the parts, like bearings, like they had these um, binoculars, which uh, you see from the bottom, you, you know, it shows from the up. We would open those and then sell them and buy some <laughs> stuff from the grocery for ourselves. and. Uh, as I was doing that, there was a say in Afghanistan that there is a big project that's coming from Turkmenistan to Afghanistan, from Afghanistan to Pakistan, Iran, and India. It's connecting the region. It's a natural gas pipeline. And whoever is able to speak English, they will hire them and give them a decent amount of salary. So as I was uh, noticing my family's... Um, economical situation was not very good um, and I was comparing and contrasting because all my uh, parents they were dependent on my grandfather my grandfather owned uh, farmhouses like the grape uh, gardens peaches and these kind of things he had laborers working for them you know he would harvest all those things and spend the money on his sons like my uncles my aunts uh, with their children, we all lived in one house that belonged to grandfather, the grandfather, uh, my father's father. So it was more of a dependency, and I was really uh, annoyed by that one, and I wanted a better future. Uh, you know, I wanted more facilities, more economical resources for my, for my family, so I decided that I have to uh, push myself and I have to study the, uh, this language and doesn't matter how long it takes and how uh, difficult it is, I have to do it. 
Uh, I started it. I give myself challenges. I went to these stationeries in Kabul and I found um, these books that are called the self-learning English. Uh, it's, it has uh, like the English word and then it has the pronunciation on my own native language in the bottom of it so I can pronounce it. And then it has another line for the meaning of it. So it, 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 it had all the things that I needed. Kabul was at that time, uh, actually there were several wars at that time. I was the witness of uh, the, a lot of killings of lots of children in Kabul, on the streets of Kabul, landmines. I saw my, my uh, childhood friends that they stepped on the landmines and I saw them that they lost their legs and their hands and they were all full of blood and a few of them I saw them they were they lost their lives like today we are playing in the playground and the next day when I go to their house to call him to come and play and then you know I saw everyone in their family their relatives their sisters and my parents they are crying on him so uh, that was those were uh, really um, tough and broken heartbroken situations for me in my life but still, I did not lose hope. I was continuously learning and learning, uh, especially the English language. At that time in Afghanistan, there was no electricity. There was no internet. There was no cell phone. There was no computer. Even in the Afghan presidential, presidential palace, you could not find one computer, one uh, desktop or you know those uh, IBM international business machines at that time they had. But uh, when people needed to call somebody, for example, uh, people had friends and relatives in Europe and US, they would go all the way from Afghanistan into Pakistan and use phones in Pakistan and pay for the phones to contact their relatives or you know, friends. And so the, it was that challenging, it was that hard, but I continuously days and night I was using the candles and studying my language and practicing it. And then as I was practicing this language, I had to talk louder sometimes, especially when I was walking on the streets in the neighborhood. And then the kids noticed, they're like, hey, what the heck are you talking? Are you crazy? What is this? I'm like, hey, man, this is international language. This is called English. If you learn it. In the future, you will have a very good job and, you know, you can become a doctor, you can become an engineer, go to the pharmacy and see all the medicine is, uh, you know, using the, the, the pharmacists are using English language for, you know, identifying the medicines, the doctor language is English, the engineer language is English. And I kind of explained this thing as I was explaining, they're like, hey, why don't you teach us whatever you know, teach us. And this actually created a very good opportunity for me. It became an obligation, more of an obligation, like I had to study so that I can better teach tomorrow to my students. That way, if they ask me something, uh, I should not have a bad face. You know, I should not get embarrassed. Like um, I was challenging myself, how should I say this in English? How about if they ask me this? Or how about if, if they ask me about that? What should be my answer to them in the class? So this was kind of more an obligation and challenge, and it opened the road for me to go and search more and more. Like I had this thesaurus dictionary. I was looking up on my vocabulary, finding the right specific uh, word that I needed for tomorrow. 
and I would uh, learn how to spill it. I would learn how to, what's the past form? How should I use it in the present form? Like all these different tenses. And uh, life was at that time really challenging. We did not have enough resources, like economical resources, such as we did not have a car in the house. Uh, we did not have enough food for all of us to eat. It was very difficult and challenging because the Mujahideen and the communist parties were in fight most of the time. The routes that delivered the, the food, like coconut oil, flour, rice, or any commodities or food products, sometimes because of the civil wars, the roads would get blocked because the, 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 the convoys that were coming uh, from Russia to Afghanistan, especially the food products, the Mujahideen would put a landmine in the middle of the street and, you know, when the convoy goes on it and it will blow off, the, the, then the, the helicopters were flying and then for a few days there were shortages of food and, you know, we just had to eat whatever comes from grandfather's uh, <laughs> um, gardens. Like most of the time I remember in the mornings I only ate uh, grapes. At lunchtime, I only ate grapes, and at night, I ate grapes. There was no bread, there was no cooking oil, there was no bean or rice because of all the distraction and the civil wars and the delays and all those different things uh, that was happening. And uh, I remember that uh, as a child, one time when I was going to the mosque uh, uh, to find my father, uh, grandfather, and, uh, you know, uh, there was a couple of guys, they pointed loaded guns at me and they told me that, are you a communist or a mujahideen? I told them I'm a child. I don't know. They, they fired the full magazines on two sides of me. I was really scared. I cried and I didn't know what to do. I was shaking. But then... Uh, Later on, as I was growing, I remembered that those guys were drunk. Those were the Mujahideen soldiers. They were really, really drunk, and they were uh, enjoying from shooting at my sides and watching my cries, and they were, they were enjoying from that one. So there was lots of uh, cruelties in Afghanistan at that time. There was not uh, accountability because there were no accountable governments. The country was divided into different segments, like uh, even the Mujahideens, there was Hezbi-Islami, Jamiat-Islami, Harakat. Uh, they, they, they were uh, funded and supported by the uh, Wahhabis uh, from uh, Saudi Arabia, from Pakistan, from Iran, and then on the other side was from Russians. That, it was a mess. It was a big mess. Nobody knew who was responsible who is, uh, you know, uh, accountable. There was no accountability at that time at all. Anybody could do anything that they want. But uh, if we come like before uh, the, the start of jihad or before the emergence of the Mujahideen, I do not remember that time because I was very, very young. But before that, Kabul, Afghanistan, uh, it had a very good era like especially during the King Zahir Shah. As you look uh, to the pictures, the ladies wore mini skirts, the, all the males, they wear pants and coats and tie. And uh, my dad was talking that 
people came from Germany, from India, from Iran, uh, from Turkmenistan into Kabul University to do their um, uh, to do their studies on on our native language like Pashto or Dari. They were doing their masters over there. Uh, it, it it had all the, the the beauties and also, but unfortunately, all the beauties, the hospitalities of the Afghan people, the friendliness of the Afghan people is taken away by uh, the, the 40 or 47 years of the, the, the wars and the contradictions and the different supports of the parties, because this country is more of a mountainous country and the, the intelligence and the region has always interfered. Like for example, if we see today Saudi Arabia and Iran, they are doing their fight in Afghanistan. Their animosity, their rivalries are happening in Afghanistan. On the other hand, when you see Pakistan and India is doing the same thing. If uh, you know that the government in Afghanistan, if they give face to India a little bit, then Pakistan becomes unhappy. <laughs> if they make friendship with Pakistan, India becomes unhappy because of the animosity and the rivalries and the greed for power and the multi-ethnic nation and uh, as well as, uh, you know, the interfere of the neighboring countries, the country has lost all its best uh, uh, heritage, uh, uh, hospitality, I mean, the good people, the people are uh, starving and, and, and it, today it's a shame as we can see you know all the, uh, the the girls are banned from school even at the Mujahideen time at that time Mujahideen had the same ideology as the Taliban has it today I remember that Mujahideen used the, uh, the battery the acid water the water that you use for the battery the car battery they used it and they spread it on the Kabul University, uh, the girls' faces, uh, because they thought that it's a shame. It's shame for, for the Afghan families if their ladies or their girls are wearing mini skirts or you know, they are not wearing burqas or they are not covered, they are coming to the university because that's how they were taught in the Pakistani madrasas, and yet it's shamefully continuously happening in Afghanistan. And on the other hand, when I look, there is no one in Afghanistan who should think about the national interest of Afghanistan. They're all thinking about their party's benefits, their tribe's benefits, or their uh, region's benefits. There is no one among all those people who call themselves the Afghan leaders there is no one who I see that he should have a, a comprehensive agenda about the national interest of Afghanistan as a whole, even at that time and now. Well, firstly, thank you for, again, painting a picture. I've had a couple of your fellow Afghani natives, uh, Fahim Fazli, who moved to the U.S., became an actor, and actually went back to join the Marines as an interpreter for a few years. And then Wali Taslim, who now works with the Black Rifle guys, he was a commando over there, too. But getting this picture painted of, you know, what it was like and, you know, some of the desperation that we see when, when people are just trying to feed their families and joining some of these militia. And then as you're talking about people protecting their parties rather than serving the nation. Well, that sounds very, very familiar here in the U.S. too. So there's a lot of commonalities, I think, even there. Well, Chad, I want to bring you in. Um, 
Same thing for you. Let's start at the very beginning. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Well, uh, my family is uh, 84 years of military service. So definitely a big, uh, a big military family. Um, we started back World War II, uh, Korea. My father was the first Marine in our family. So 50 something years ago, my father went to Marines, was infantryman in Vietnam. Um, myself doing eight deployments to Afghanistan and then both my son's Marines, uh, one, one was Afghanistan veteran as well, Hunter. So that's kind of, you know, my family background. Uh, but I did come from a, a very, uh, Southern Louisiana, uh, grew up in like, if you ever seen swamp people, like grew up in the Homa, Thibodeau, Raceland, those areas, Louisiana, which is very like, I don't want to say country, very swamp, uh, people kind of, you know, my, my whole, uh, mother side of my family are commercial fishermen. Uh, so my first job was skinning catfish and, uh, and fishing with my grandfather. Um, and then my dad's side of the family were, uh, trading cattle and, and bailing hay. So very blue collar, uh, hardworking families, a lot of dysfunctional, uh, a lot of dysfunction in my home. My father definitely had, uh, his hardships from, from Vietnam, a lot of alcohol, uh, a lot of women, uh, went, went through, you know, multiple marriages and women and, and a lot, very violent man. So a lot of physical abuse in my home, including myself. And I don't mean spanking something like fist to face physical abuse. So that's kind of how I grew up. I had a brother. He was a year older than me. We were, uh, we were, you know, Southern Louisiana country boys, always out in the mud and woods and swamps playing like we're in the military and had this desire to go in the military. And um, we, uh, we decided we were, I was 13. He was 14 years old. That's what we would do. And uh, we really thought it would be a way to escape that lifestyle. And uh, but but one of the things we had uh, always noticed was my father, as as uh, angry of a man as he was, the only thing that made him really happy was the fact that he was the United States Marine. And uh, and that was like you know the Marines was like what appealed to me because it was he was so proud of it. And I had uh, I had this really that was around the time of uh, you know Navy SEALs had those documentaries coming out and they were really promoting the SEALs. So super interested in the, the jumping and diving, but I didn't want to be in the Navy. And so I learned about recon Marines and force recon Marines and started reading a lot of books uh, on that, those guys in Vietnam and had this really infatuation with a uh, Marine, re- Marine reconnaissance and, and uh, particularly a unit third force recon in, uh, in Vietnam. And that, uh, ironically I ended up being in that unit years later. But uh, so that's the path we went on. Like me and my brother started running and swimming. We're lifelong athletes. So we were uh, sort of running and swimming at that young age. And about a year into that tragedy hit my family. My brother was shot and killed. Um, and uh, so it's extremely devastating to me. Put me in a pretty deep isolation as a child. Uh, he, uh, my, what I had left of a family, my father did not want to deal with the grieving mother. Uh, the, it was my, it was actually my stepmom. She moved away. My dad moved to Africa to go take a job there, not to deal with that. So my 20 year old sister and myself ended up living in my, in my, my dad's home. And, uh, I was trying to, the house was paid for, but everything else was on us. So, uh, you know, from 14 to 17 years old, I was working, trying to go to high school and, uh, probably wasn't going to graduate high school. Uh, and I went to a Marine Corps recruiter named Staff Sergeant Brown and told him my story, told him what I was going through. He helped me write a hardship letter to the Marine Corps and the Marine Corps enlisted me at 17 years old without, without even a high school diploma. And so, uh, that was 1993. 
And uh, in that first year is when I tried out to be, you know, become a reconnaissance Marine. And uh, as most people probably listening knows, it's very difficult in any special operations to make it through that process. All the branches have about 80% attrition rate in their special operations programs. And somehow at 18 years old, you know, I was, uh, I was able to make it through my first round. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of great jobs in the military, but for me, there was no, nothing more fitting for me than being a recon Marine. And, uh, but, uh, you know, going into that time, there's a lot of peacetime training. And so I got to do all the schools, you know, combat dive, jump school, free fall school, and then becoming a free fall team leader at third force recon company. And I uh, was in almost 10 years, uh, before nine 11 happened. And when nine 11 happened, you know, I was a Sergeant team leader at third force recon and, Watching those plane fly, planes fly in the Royal Trade Center buildings, I, I knew, you know, I think everyone, everyone in the military at the time knew, like, my life's about to be different, and uh, the world just changed, and we're gonna, we're gonna go, we're gonna go back just right, and uh, and so I was extremely eager to get my chance to to deploy, but that's kind of how how I grew up and what brought me to, you know, from being a kid, and I look back at all that from martial arts starting at five years old to to. Uh, a dysfunctional home, which I'm not championing a dysfunctional home at all, but, uh, but the hardships that came with that, I believe all those, all those things, uh, allowed me to have a, a certain resiliency and, and a certain drive to, you know, want to make my life better and, uh, seize opportunities to make my life better because of the way I grew up. And, um, and it all led me to the opportunity I had to, you know, ultimately when September 11th happened, you know, take all those things and all that life experience and, and trials and tribulations and and uh and combine with that training experience and, and go and and take advantage of the opportunity that I had to, you know, do something good to set the record straight for 9-11. And then ultimately my perspective changed when I got to Afghanistan. And it wasn't just about 9-11, it was about helping those people in Afghanistan that are that are truly oppressed. And you know, situations like that really change your perspective when you get to see them firsthand. Absolutely. Well, I want to go back for a second. When I first started this podcast, which was just over six years ago now, as a firefighter and a paramedic, we kind of were starting to understand the whole mental health conversation, but it was still, well, it's what we see on the job. So it's what, you know, Aziz saw when he lost his friends. It's what, you know, you saw when you were deployed. But as this has kind of paid out and I've heard all these stories, what I realized is one of the least discussed, but seemingly most powerful elements of mental health in the first responder or military profession is actually what happened to us before we ever put the uniform on with you having all these generations of of different veterans in your family including your own children what is your observation of that whether it's within your family lineage or the people that come to the mighty oaks well i believe what i've deserved in my own life and in the life of uh of thousands now, you know, I've spoken to 450,000 active duty troops in my resiliency speaking. And then we've had 4,500 graduates of our, of our recovery program. Uh, what I really ha- have determined is that there's a predisposition uh, to uh, dealing with anxiety, depression, and PTSD that is seen in military veterans, uh, police, fire, you know, for people from the EMS and emergency and, and the first responder field. I think there's a predisposition to it because you know, I've seen some amazing guys like uh, I got a Matt Hyde, who's a Navy SEAL, uh, some incredible combat experience. Jeremy Stolnecker, who's a co-founder of Mighty Oaks, who's Marine uh, Infantry, Infantry Platoon Commander. Like these guys both had a uh, high level combat trauma experiences, but because of the way they were raised, they grew up in a really healthy family. 
They were strong uh, Christians before they went in. They had a really strong spiritual foundation in their life. They seen those hard things and had a little bit of maybe a little bit of a you know time navigating past them. But ultimately, they were because of the the past they had, they were able to rebound really quickly. Where uh, people like me uh, and people who have had very rough childhoods, which is a lot of people that end up end up in the military, a lot of people that end up in law enforcement and, and fire and uh, particularly in, in my community, special operations community, people that grew up with that kind of, that kind of rough, dirty lifestyle, that grit end up, end up in those fields. Uh, they already have like so much built up. Uh, I mean, just like this coffee cup here, right? If they have so much built up. So if this is coffee cup and I know some of this listening and not looking, so kind of indicating like a, maybe three quarters full uh, of a cup uh, of trauma through their childhood and life. And he takes a major event like a shooting or, or a mass casualty incident or, or seeing, you know, kids mangled or going to combat. If you took that, uh, that three quarters full cup and you dropped a bunch of chunks in it of ice, it's going to come spilling over. And, uh, and, you know, and that's what, uh, I think we see, but if you have like a really stable upbringing childhood and that, that cups only a, a quarter full of trauma and hardship and heart heartbreak, then you're able to, uh, you're able to drop some pretty big things in it. And yeah, it, it rattles your world a little bit, but you're able to not spill over. Uh, and, and that's, that's kind of was me. I mean, my whole life, I mean, extreme physical abuse in my life, uh, rejection from my parents. You know, I felt like I felt my whole life, the abandonment of both my mother and father, not wanting me. Uh, and then, and then moving into, uh, you know, my brother being who's the closest person to me in my life at that time, going through dysfunctional home like that, you get really bonded with a sibling and, and then to have him just in one moment, you know, we were talking that morning and the next morning, you know, hours later, he was shot in the chest and immediately killed. He's gone. Uh, those types of things. And the following year, my, my grandparents, like uh, you know, my grandfather was killed and and, uh, and my grandmother, who I like sat and had ate breakfast with every morning, like was, was killed. So like all this like happened at one time and then, uh, you know, it never dealt with it at all. Uh, you know, there was no, I wasn't in a healthy home environment to be able to help process those things. So, so you go in the military and, and you just kind of live life and those things are just right below the surface. They're not, they're not surfacing. You're not seeing anything from it. They're right below the surface. But then you add something like aid deployments to Afghanistan, you know, uh, the things as these and I seen, you know, we, uh, they're not aid deployments. I uh, had 15 friends buried, uh, you know, that, and, and uh, all of them very close to, but one, one of them, you know, was like a best friend of 10 years. We served together for 10 years. So uh, having all those things happen, you know, my cup was already full and it, and it spilled over and, uh, and, you know, brought a lot of things out into my personal life and my family and, and people around me had to suffer for it. And, and uh, you know, I, I thought I was unique in that, but doing the work that I do now, I realized I'm not unique in that at all. Like so many guys from the, again, from the military and first responder communities, uh, if you look at, look at their lives, it's a very consistent pattern with mine. And, uh, we had all these guys that are amazing combat veterans and, and first responders. They, they have been through so much on the job and, you know, guys that have had like Navy cross recipients or medal of honor recipients and, uh, and, and, uh, and, you know, guys, silver star, stuff like that. First responders that, you know, police officers have been in these incredible heroic shootings and things like this. And, and uh, firefighters that are running into burning buildings and all these things, right? And you and you get them in, you get them in a, in our program, and they're there for a week. And at the end of that week, they get the opportunity to share their story. And you're waiting for you're waiting for it. You know, there I was, like knee deep in, in hand grenade pins and and and, and bullet casings, or that you know they, the building was burning and the fire was there, but I could hear a little girl screaming. You're waiting for them to say that, but they say when I was seven years old, 
when I was five, when I was 10 years, that's what you hear. That's where they start. And, uh, and, and it's, and it, at first it shocked me. Uh, but now it's like, you know, I understand that's, that's where it began. And, uh, and, and oftentimes it's where people have to go back to, to find the healing in, in the programs that we do. Well, I, I really appreciate your perspective because that's a aha moment that I had. And I was, you know, somewhat educated in this area and I was a little bit more clued into the, the kind of physical and mental wellness than some people are. But when you look at that now and, and you look, okay, you have this, this childhood where you are abused, you do feel vulnerable, you want the buck to stop there, you want to be the protector, you want to build this shield around you. Our professions are the perfect ones to walk into. Then you go in there, you're so busy with trying to stay alive in a house fire, you know, in a, in a firefight, that it's a great distraction until it's not, until we get to that point, whether we've seen so much trauma or we just have the opposite. We transition out, we stop, and now we're forced to be on our own with our thoughts. And so then when you look at that conversation that's out there, let's just do 22 push-ups and talk about stigma, or, oh, it must be that, that call that you had. If you're not addressing the formative years of your life that led you into that profession in the first place, that's why these men and women feel like, well, I may as well just stick a gun in my mouth because I tried counseling. It didn't work. So this is what's so important. I think to hear voices like yours is until we look at the holistic human being from birth through to where they are now, the chances of missing the origin of the trauma are huge. It's, it's the tip of the iceberg analogy, right? There, there, that most counselors and, and uh, especially if you're doing a, what's called co cognitive therapy, they're addressing the tip of the iceberg and they're not looking at everything below the surface. And, uh, and, you know, and I'm not saying that's all cognitive therapists, but, uh, that's, that's what I've seen, particularly in the VA. Um, you know, there's, there's lots of different types of treatments, you know, you have your traditional clinical cognitive therapy, you have, a you have a, a methodology that that's called prolonged exposure. Um, and then you have, you know, other, like other type of mentoring uh, programs and all of them are, you know, some of them are good. Some of them are bad, but what I've found in the, in the, in the cognitive therapy, which is very traditional to, uh, to police fire and, uh, and, and, um, and, uh, military is that they try to find an incident and then they try to cast blame. They try to lead you to cast blame of that incident on someone else to take it off of you. And, uh, and that's not uh, in the long-term healthy. It's, it's the, it's the analogy where you see, you know, Sigmund Freud saying, tell me about your mother, tell me about your father, because they're going back to childhood and saying, well, you're this way because your mother or father treated you bad. Uh, there's no acceptance or responsibility with that. You can't change what your mother and father did, but you can change how you respond to it. And so that's why I love that things like prolonged exposure, because they, you go back to all the incidents of your life and you, and you, and you look at that and you say, well, I can't change what happened to me, but I can change how I respond to it. And, uh, and then, you know, with us and Mighty Oaks, we do a faith-based approach where we say, yeah, you can't change what happened to you, but you can, you can respond differently. And here's how the Bible says you should be make living response to these difficult things that you've been through in your life. And, uh, it, it gives back control to the person. It, it stops making them want to change what happened and, uh, and, and actually face it and say, okay, this is how I'm going to live my life in response to that. And, uh, and stop trying to cast blame or, or try, uh, you know, short-term solutions like, like I said, I'm, I'm hats off to everyone that has done 22 pushups, but it changes absolutely nothing. Uh, I mean, it brings awareness to a problem. We already know they exist. We already know 22 veterans kill themselves every day. It's like, everybody knows it. So what are we going to do about it? Right. That's uh, let's take action. Let's not just bring awareness, more awareness and raise millions and millions of dollars to be wasting awareness. Everyone knows there's a problem. Let, let's, let's solve it. Let's put, <clears throat> uh, you know, give people some tools to actually, face the things they've been dealt with, dealt with uh, and then, and then uh, be able to make better life decisions to live in spite of those things. 
And uh, that's the approach I've always taken, uh, you know, since in, in my own recovery, since I, I faced my own recovery and in the, the, all the thousands and thousands of people that we've been privileged to serve at Mighty Oaks. And uh, it seems to be quite a bit more successful. Well, you mentioned about the the kind of on ramp into the Marines was was quote unquote peacetime. Um, so I know during that time you also worked as a reserve police officer in New Orleans for a little bit. So two questions. Firstly, was it amazing working with Steven Seagal? <laughs> Actually, he he was working at Jefferson Parish Sheriff's Office. Oh, he was at the same time. That it was there. it was the same time frame? <laughs> so I was at St. Charles Sheriff's Office. He was at Jefferson Parish, which is a neighboring one, and a lot of the task force we were on were the same one. So he'd be coming around there, you know, doing his uh with his video team, getting some footage. He was a reserve at a uh, at Jefferson Parish. So I was actually a reserve in the Marine Corps at the time and full time police officer uh, or or deputy um, for four years because. And I did my four years of active duty as a recon marine. Nothing much was going on at that time. I, I wanted to go back in as an officer. So I figured I'd go to college uh, and, you know, already had a wife and son and, and three kids by the time that was over. So, uh, so I, you know, I needed a job and, and that was the best thing that I could do. And I had a really, in four years, I got to do a lot. I was, a, you know, I came out of the police academy and they put me undercover in narcotics. And then I went to patrol for a year and then I went to the detective bureau and then I was in special investigations for the last year. So like at these each, each year of those four years, I got to do you know, some pretty incredible, um, incredible things. And, uh, but I did see Steven Seagal down there, uh, shooting some of his stuff. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, on the other side, a serious note, um, I know, you know, during your time in the blue uniform, there was a pretty, um, uh, significant event where there was a suicidal man involved. So, if you want to want to share that, because I mean, you've already talked about the trauma yeah. that you brought into the uniform, but this is another compounding element in your career. Yeah, um, you know, I just got done working, did a year undercover, and I was just fresh in, in patrol. And uh, one of my guys who helped train me, um, Steve Cantelli, he was a he was a, like one beat over, which is you know one one like geographical zone over from me. And uh, Marine, very experienced guy. Uh, and uh, I heard his voice come over the radio at a domestic violence call, and he could tell something was wrong. And he was calling for uh, another unit. And, uh, and and in the radio system, we had just got a brand new radio system, and it glitched out. Of course, you know Murphy's Law time, it glitched out, and uh, couldn't hear him anymore. So I'm like rushing over there, and, and you know, with my lights on, and trying to get over there as fast as possible because I just knew something was was really wrong. And when I got to where he was, I saw this. He was in an elevated, like not a trailer home, but like a modular home. And, uh, and there was about 30 people outside, uh, of this house in front of, uh, so you can tell it's like a big scene in front of this modular home. And he's on this porch, elevated porch, arguing with this lady. And you can tell it's like super frantic. So I make it up on this porch and he tells me to, uh, Hey, deal with this lady. This guy had just barricaded himself in the back room, uh, with a rifle. And his name was Russell Stebbins. Um, and he, he was, uh, we had dealt with him before. And, uh, so the lady's trying to get inside the house, uh, well, this guy has a gun. So I'm arguing with her and I was like, just done arguing with her. So I grabbed her by the back of her clothes and kind of pushed her over the rail and had some of the, the men that were down in that crowd help grab her and pull her away. So like her and her two kids were down there, two little kids were down, down there. And, uh, and then I watched the front door and my partner, Steve went to the back window of the room he was in. Cause see the one of them, they start shooting out of that window uh, towards the crowd. He just really wanted to get to his wife. He had been drinking. <clears throat> and, uh, as I'm standing in his doorway, um, across 
kind of catacorner across. There's a, a like a kitchen to the right, and a, and I'm looking right in the living room, and across catacorner is a hallway, and and I seen uh, there was a mirror, and I could see him leaning against the wall, like taking cover in that corner, and I could see him in the mirror, and uh, he had a rifle, and he was like manipulating the chamber, like press checking it, you know, to make sure, like, tell, you know, to me, making sure it's loaded. And, uh, and, you know, I start yelling at him, like, Hey, put the, put the gun down, come out. Let's, let's talk about, you know, whatever, whatever's going on. And he's yelling at me, you guys need to leave. Uh, and I'm like, we're not leaving. So let's just talk about this, put the gun down. It's kind of like more a police dialogue at, at that time. And, uh, you know, he's telling me, he's telling me to leave. And then he comes around the corner and uh, he had the rifle over his shoulder, kind of like uh, not in a not in his shoulder, like he's shooting it, but over his shoulder. And his hand was over the receiver, and his thumb was like right next to the trigger roll. Obviously, my my mind was like zoned in on that. And so I could see his, like, if you think of the continuum of lethal force, like I had everything in my you know lethal force continuum to, to shoot him at that point. Right, he's pointing a rifle at me, his hands next to the trigger. I, I could have shot him at that point. If you'd asked me that morning, like somebody points a gun at you. Of course, yeah, I'm going to shoot him. But, but uh, I don't know something about that moment. Like I, I felt like his wife's right there, his kids are outside. He's been drinking too much. The dinner's still on their table. I can see food on their table. The kids' toys on the floor. His family pictures there. I'm like, I, I'm still in control. Like I could see that if he re- if he tries to shoot me, I'm I'm gonna you know, my guns on him. Like I'm, I'm going to shoot him. So I felt like still in control. And so I went from like, please talking, please dialogue to like, uh, I'm, I'm put your gun down. I'm, I'm going to F and kill you. Like I, I remember telling him that like, I'm going to, I'm going to F and kill you. And, and he said again for me to leave. And, uh, and he started coming towards me really fast. And, uh, and so I, I ran towards him and I grabbed the barrel of his gun and pushed it away from, from me, uh, to get that barrel pointed away from me. And, and I, I t- re- kind of retained my gun in tight and I kicked him in the nuts, like not like a soccer kick, but like a push kick to be able to pull that gun away. And, uh, and that uh, nothing happened. I mean, he was six, three, 263 pounds. So he's, and I'm, I was probably like 130 pounds at the time. Uh, but I'd been, you know, I'd, lifelong training. And at the time I was training a lot. So, you know, I, I, I was doing a lot of Muay Thai and Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. So I kicked him really hard. Second time I kicked him, uh, I don't know how, but he grabbed my wrist. And so now me and this giant guy are fighting over two guns. Uh, he has my wrist with my gun in it. I have his barrel of his gun. And I knew in that moment, just looking at him and tussling around with him, like he's not going to give up. He's not ever going to, you know, he's, he's in this to, 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 you know, to win. And so I kind of turned my wrist over and broke his grip and, and uh, fired a single round right in the center of his, right in the center of his chest. Like uh, I could, I seen his, I seen it hit like the concussion, uh, hit in his chest and, uh, and I fired five more rounds. So I fired six rounds right in the center of his chest. I didn't really know at the time, but Steve was, Steve had already came in the room behind me. Uh, and he, uh, he fired right over my ear. Um, and he fired six, six rounds as well. Uh, we hit him 11 times out of 12. Uh, I always say jokingly, although it's not funny, but I didn't drop the round. <laughs> uh, so me and Steve always, joked about who stopped the round around in, in uh, forensics and then proving that it was him. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, he, he, uh, it was the weirdest thing. Cause as I start shooting, you know, we could have a whole another conversation about the physiological effects of being in a shooting like that. I remember like watching the, watching the, my gun function, seeing the casings roll out, hearing the mechanics of the gun, Steve's, Steve's gun was against my ear with obviously no ear pro in. And I could hear just like pops, but I never heard uh, a bang. 
my eardrums never got blown out. I could hear people talking about 30 feet behind me and know everything they were saying. Uh, so I had audio exclusion, but I had clear, clear hearing, which is, I think, miraculous how the human body works that way. I could even hear the mechanics of his gun functioning and everything slowed down, like, but in a way that you could think clear or not like, uh, not like be you know, bogged down by, by it. I was actually I had some super clear focused thought. And, uh, as those rounds, after those you know, rounds hit Russell, he, uh, he dropped his knees and he, he looked right at me and conversationally, like he wasn't in pain or anything. Just conversationally, he said, you killed me. And, uh, and then he turned and fell, he slumped over and fell. And, uh, because he turned his back, he turned his back to me, he fell down and I reached under, I kind of tackled him, uh, reached under, pulled his rifle out from under him to get it away. And I pulled his arms behind him. And as I'm pulling his arms behind him, I think one, one of his wrists, uh, probably the one that had my grip him. Cause when I broke my, broke the grip, I think his hand went in front of him and one, and one of those rounds went through his wrist. And so, uh, his wrist was like blown out and bleeding. So we're trying to handcuff him and it was like slippery and noodle. His wrist was like noodle because the bones were blown out. And I had like short sleeves on. And I remember just like handcuffing him and like slipping in the blood. And, and, uh, and, and then, um, as I'm handcuffing, I hear the police, other police cars coming. I look back and seen his wife and, uh, holding the kids and just screaming. And I actually want to go to her. Like, I, you know, even though she probably didn't want me to go to, go to her, but I wanted to go to her because I was like trying to help her, you know, and, um, and I wanted to go to her like, like it was an instinct to comfort her. And then Steve's, Steve's much more experienced than me. He's like, Hey, let's just go handcuff them, clear them. Let's go clear the rest of the house and clear the rest of the house. And by the time we cleared the rest of the house, uh, those, you know, place that already blocked the doorway. Uh, my supervisor came in, they separated Steve and I, and, uh, and, you know, um, did, uh, took us to the detective bureau, took our guns away, read us our rights, interview, interviewed us, polygraphed us. And then we ended up, uh, Go, going home that night and then, um, you know, it ended up being a big deal. I just remember Chief calling me the next morning and saying, hey, don't read the newspaper. And of course I did. And the front news, front of the newspaper said, said cold-blooded murder. And uh, and then it said, please say justified, like super small underneath. And so I went through a process. I went before a grand jury. Uh, I went before a grand jury for a first degree, a second degree murder indictment was cleared. And then Steve and I both got from the state of Louisiana, the governor's award for Medal, Medal of Valor. Um, but, uh, it was still, it was still a mess and really, really made me a pretty cynical, <laughs> pretty cynical person at that time. Cause, um, you know, when a DA, DA forced me to go before a grand jury instead of taking a position on it, cause it was election year and yeah, it was, you know, pretty cynical. And then the way the public responded to it, you know, it, it was just, it, it made me a pretty cynical person for a while, not understanding, I mean, you know, what, what had really happened. So I was, I was super young too. So yeah well thank you for sharing that there's a lot of people out there at the moment i know there's some that's sitting in prison for doing the exact same thing that are police officers you know so and it and a lot of times as you said it aligns with someone's political career that made that choice yeah yeah i mean um it was election year for the district attorney and he could ease i mean the, the evidence <laughs> was so clear i mean especially forensic evidence like uh was was so clear when it happened but he didn't want to politically make that statement himself so he put it on the he put it on the public to do a grand jury and, and it's always easier to put it in the public than a, a district attorney to make the decision. And, uh, you know, and you had, you had witness statements saying, I didn't understand, you know, how PTSD worked and, and, uh, and how people's traumatic experiences worked to people, but they had witness statements that people actually, you could tell they went lying. They believed what they were saying. And they like, they looked through a door and saw us standing over him with his back turned executing him and that we shot him 12 times in the back. 
And I'm like, how can people say that? Like, and I, in the grand jury, they testified to that. And, uh, and all the forensics showed that the bullets were all, all through his chest. And, uh, and so in that conflicting eyewitness statement, some said we shot him in front. I'm like, yeah. so, you know, now I know that people hear gunshots, then they look through the door and then they see him turned on his knees facing away from us. And they, in their mind, it's all one, one thing. So, yeah. So I learned a lot about, about, you know, how things like that happen. And it was, uh, but it was, it was a difficult time to go through. It was scary because, uh, I mean, man, politically, if you get indicted for that, you're going to jail. And, uh, you know, I'm like, I'm just trying to, out here trying to help, trying to serve, uh, you know, and uh, you're getting put in jail for doing, you know, trying to help people. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's a guy, uh, Ben Darby, who's a police officer who's in jail at the moment. And it was a suicidal guy. Um, the, the, the guy... You know, had a history actually it turned out after supposedly had planned on killing a policeman had told someone this but he starts moving the weapon towards ben and, and his partner who's already kind of in the what they call it the the funnel of death or whatever the term is you know um and he ends up shooting him you know and now and it was the same kind of thing initially he was cleared and then they uh, they went back and go oh actually you were a murderer and they threw the book at him and he's now in prison so yeah, it's, it's, it's heartbreaking to hear. I mean, when there's people that have done something wrong in uniform, they should absolutely pay for it, 100%. But when they're put in a situation where they don't have a choice but to take that action, that's a completely different conversation. All right, well then, I want to bring you into Afghanistan so we can bring Aziz back into the conversation. So what I would love to do, I've had um, some of your fellow uh, Marine Recons on, um, Rudy Reyes is one of them, uh, Major James Capers, who's incredible Vietnam, you know, era recon, I think one of the, the original recon Marines. Um, but what I like to do is this, for the average civilian, in America especially, we get a very polarized view of war. It's either they're all a bunch of baby killers, or it's, you know, kill them all, let God sort them out. And the reality is our men and women are sent overseas to try and help people who are being pressed in their own country. And so it's very important that we hear, you know, the the kind of pros and the cons, if you like, of that. So the first part of the conversation, you've already obviously been through a huge amount of trauma in your own childhood. Then you've worked in uniform in, in multiple positions and seen and done things then. When you got to Afghanistan, regardless of the politics, I mean, obviously, you know, 9-11 was a pretty significant event. But aside from that, regardless of what sent you over there, was there a moment where you realized that in that country there were atrocities and, you know, some horrendous people that need to be taken care of? Yeah, you know, um, I had a very unique job, like Aziz was saying, you know, I was a four-street con Marine, but, I, you know, I, I didn't deploy in that traditional sense. I was I, I, I was selected to go to a JSOC task force, a Joint Special Operations Command task force with one the premier uh you know, in my opinion, the premier special operations unit in the world. So I was extremely privileged to go to this unit. And, uh, and my job there was the AFO advanced force operator, which means I worked in a singleton capacity. The best way I know how to describe it to people listening is probably like an undercover cop and, uh, to go ahead of my unit and do build all the clandestine infrastructure to put our soldiers on target to capture, kill bad guys. So when you see, you know, guys going to unpermissive area, uh, and, and kicking a door and, and capture, or kill a bad guy, they didn't get there by accident. Somebody was there on the ground before them setting the whole operation up and building the clandestine infrastructure, put them on the ground. That's, that's the AFOs. And, uh, and so you will usually work by yourself or one on a teammate. And so my job was working with Aziz. A lot of times people, um, 
ask, man, how'd you work with the same interpreter for eight deployments? It's because of the nature of that job. You know, we had the rapport. So Aziz and I worked alone together a lot of a lot. And, uh, and so I didn't, when we were done operating, I didn't go back to base and he went home. Like I was with him. We lived out in community together. So that gave me a very unique opportunity to learn who the Taliban was, what Aziz and people like Aziz had been through before America got there and learning the atrocities that they were under the depression, the Taliban had put them under the, uh, the, uh, the things that they do to women, uh, not just not, you know, you think, oh, it's terrible. They won't let them go to go to school and be educated. That's the, very much the least of the things that they have to deal with. You know, being forced to live in a home. And, and I heard Afghan women saying, if you just pretend to be like an ant, then the house will seem bigger, right? Like, like the thought of being imprisoned in your own home for your whole your whole life, and uh, and then being sexually, uh, you know, sexually forced into marriage, and or, or as a nine year old girl to a fifty year old guy. And being forced to be sexually enslaved for your whole life, and your parents, your own parents, sold you for, you know, five hundred bucks to to this fifty year old man. Uh, I mean, imagine like what that life would be like. So the Taliban, this is the things the Taliban put on them: beating women for uh, for reading a book, um, you know, or for uh, accidentally their sleeve accidentally came up and they showed their wrist, and they're not going to get beaten. Uh, raping them because they they made themselves seem promiscuous. So now it's okay for a man to rape them. And now their whole life's ruined. Their own family will, will, will abandon them because of this. So, uh, so you really understand, I really begin to understand who the Taliban was, the sexual molestation of little boys and little girls. And, and, and uh, Aziz really exposed me to that. I mean, we, we're, there's a part in the book talking about the killing pool, the way that, uh, that started. And I actually wrote about it in two different books because it's so profound. It was so profound to me. I wrote about it in my book, An Unfair Advantage, and in the new book, Saving Aziz. But uh, in 2004, there was a presidential election between President Bush and John Kerry, and uh, and Aziz invited me over to the election party. And I'm like, you guys have an election party like a <laughs> like for uh, for the U.S. election? This thing was like a Super Bowl party in the United States. Like I've never seen Americans hold an election party like this. And by the way, this is like pre Donald Trump, but people didn't get crazy about presidential elections. Like this was like a really big deal. And I was like blown away that these guys would have like family over food. They're glued to the TV. And I'm like, what are they so interested in this for? Well, they were worried that John Kerry would get elected, that they would pull us troops out of Afghanistan, just like what happened in 2021 and the Taliban would come back in. So it made me, it made me first realize the impact that a strong or weak America has on the world. You know, we think about a strong or weak America's national defense and our commander in chief, what it does for us in the United States, but the impact we have on the world. It was my first glimpse of that, the, how worried they were about our national policy. And, uh, and, and then um, watching President Bush win and seeing how excited everyone was and people start dancing and eating food. And that's what Afghans do when they, they're excited to dance and eat food. Uh, <laughs> well, the the good guys do. The bad guys start shooting shooting things. And but 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 uh, I remember talking to Aziz about it and just blown away by it. And he wanted to show me, so he took me into this apartment building in town, where uh, where when the Taliban was in charge, they would go and 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 a lot of women, single women, live there. They would go there and do like kind of like a prison inspection. You know, turning over the cots and and uh, and and inspecting for contraband and. And they would rape women there and women would throw themselves off of this roof uh, because they didn't want to be raped. And including one of Aziz's relatives uh, that he had told me about that had threw herself off the, the roof there uh, just not to be raped by the Taliban. And that, that level of oppression, you know, imagine, you know, that level of oppression. People talk about, you know, that in America, but 
where you where you have little girls throwing themselves off of roofs because they don't want to face their uh, their enforcers. And then he took me to this place uh, right uh, at a house and across the street across the street was this hill. And on the top of this hill is this Russian uh, built swimming pool that the Soviets had built there uh, where they would practice. It was Olympic pool. They would practice, you know, for the Olympic Games there high dive towers and, uh, and, and, uh, it was drained. And as I remember Z's and I walking up, some kids scurried off and, and, uh, there was at the top, uh, top platform was a, a steel cable hung through, which was a noose to hang people from. Uh, and then you go down in the pool and, uh, and both ends, they're like riddled with thousands of bullet holes. And you could, I took my, my leatherman out and pulled some casings out and, you know, that those casings went through people's bodies or heads and there were mass executions done in this pool and aziz said you know how they would hang people there and they would uh, throw people off the top the top like garbage and, and kill them right in front of their families and you know this is where mass executions happen and uh and i remember just like my whole perspective changing when aziz showed me this like i went there because a, a angry american rightfully angry that uh people came to our country and flew to airplanes in the world trade center buildings and killed you know thousands of americans that they they attacked our pentagon and flew a, a plane into our pentagon which is you know to, to me should be one of the most protected places on the on the planet and uh so that's why i went there but when aziz exposed me to what the afghan people had been through my perspective really changed i think i matured a lot that day to realize you know america's place in this world is, is not just to protect our country but because of that strength and we have this responsibility to help people that can't help themselves those Afghan people aren't in a position to help themselves. And so we had an opportunity to not only uh, make America a safer place, but protect these people who have been truly oppressed by the Taliban regime and give them the opportunity to uh, to live safe lives. Uh, I don't believe in America being the world police, but when we have opportunity like that. We should we should execute it. And, uh, and, and men like Aziz, who, who came back to Afghanistan when he was safe in Dubai, came back to Afghanistan to, to build a country where uh, his daughters could go to school and, and be free and his daughters could live a life to where they're not going to be forced to be raped their whole life. And uh, I was there when his oldest son, Mashud, was born and his oldest daughter, Mashuda, was born. And and, uh, and to see him as a father, and I was a father at the time too, like see him as a father, say, I don't, I don't want my daughter to go through this. I, I'm willing to go out there in the mountains with you and 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 do these operations because I want to free Afghanistan. He wasn't looking for a meal ticket to America. He's here because he because he has to be, but he he wanted a, a free Afghanistan. He was fighting for it, and he's one he's one example of so many brave Afghans who fought for the freedom. And I tell you, one one of the things that during the evacuations that got under my skin the most was when the president of the United States got on got on the news and, and stood behind a microphone and said, "How can we help these people when they won't fight for themselves?" That was the most disrespectful and uh and like put fire in my vein statement because one he's never been there, uh, but 60,000 Afghans like Aziz died in the last 20 years fighting for their country to protect their country and, and fight for the freedom. Because 60,000 brave Afghans uh, chose not to be on the Taliban side where it would have been easy. They chose to be on the side of the resistance to fight for their daughters and fight for their freedom and fight for their freedom in their country. And, and that's just the ones that put on the uniform. That's not the hundreds of thousands of uh, Afghan civilians that died. I mean, that's equivalent like per capita ratio, like our civil war. Uh, they, they bravely fought for their country. And uh, and they didn't quit, lay down their arms. We quit on them. And uh, I mean, you'd wonder, like, how could they turn this? This videos of Afghans like crying, having to turn their rifles over. I mean, they're not out, out on deployment in another country. 
their fa- their wives and kids are down the street. Like if they fight when they had their air resources taken away, they had the entire strength of the international community that was fighting the Taliban and supporting advising them that was taken away overnight. If they keep fighting, it's not just them that's going to get killed. Most of those guys would fight to the death. I, I know because I've been there. But they're going to watch their their wives be stuck in wood chippers and their their daughters be raped in front of them. Uh, we did that to them. We forced, we, we quit. They didn't quit. And, uh, and so, you know, uh, for any Afghan interpreter listening or, or people still, these guys still, I know, and people that were there know that they did, they were, they were brave warriors and willing to fight till the end. And it wasn't us. It wasn't them that quit. It was, you know, it, it was our government, not us. Uh, I'll say our government that, that quit on them. And, uh, you know, and by heart, I'll always be apologetic to that as an American. Yeah. Well, I mean, thank you. Like I said, this this is what we need to hear. These are the stories. This is what I've always kind of really hated is, oh, we're at war with Afghanistan. No, we're not at war with Afghanistan. Yeah. <laughs> there are extremists in Afghanistan murdering their own people that our men and women are trying to help, you know, liberate. So, Aziz, from your perspective, as as we've learned now, you had the opportunity to not be in Afghanistan. You deliberately ran towards danger again to go and be part of the solution in your own country so walk me through your journey back from dubai back to afghanistan and then through an afghani's eyes the americans and and the other allied nations coming into your country and then kind of your experience of those few years well as uh, from uh, as i said uh, before from the childhood uh, i was really interested to see my country uh, grow and, uh, you know, a step towards uh, modernization, especially when I was in Dubai, I saw these beautiful buildings and the roads, the infra- infrastructure, everything was so nice and well uh, done in the United Arab Emirates, I mean, the whole thing, and then uh, compared to my country, I became more and more uh, interested and convinced that if there is ever an opportunity uh, to help my country become uh, similar to Dubai, uh, I would uh, give uh, all kinds of sacrifice to that one. And as soon as uh, the catastrophic uh, 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 attack happened, the 9-11 on the United States, when it happened, and I noticed the uh, United States military presence, uh, in, uh, presence in Afghanistan, I called my father and I told him, what should I do? He's like, hey, man, you didn't learn all that English for no reason or for nothing. So this is your time. This is your chance. You need to come back. I'm like, I cannot come back through the, uh, the way that I came because I used uh, the boat and the Gulf waters. And, you know, uh, we got the Magdam to United Arab Emirates uh, by the Pakistani and Iranian border police. And it was so risky to, to take those routes again. And then he's like, okay, just walk to them, uh, one of the police stations and tell them everything. Tell them the truth and they will probably send you. And that's what I did. And I came. As soon as I came, I took the opportunity. I joined uh, the third uh, military, uh, U.S. Uh, Special Forces uh, Battalion in Kabul Military Training Center. Uh, I was not only an interpreter, I was a cultural advisor to them, I was a business consultant, and I was almost like a teammate, uh, because every thing that they did, I was physically beside them, I was uh, doing the interpretation, translation, and advising them, because sometimes 
for those uh, the, the U.S. military soldiers, uh, sometimes they didn't understand. Like, for, for example, when they were going to intervene in one of the uh, neighborhood areas where they wanted to do house searches, you know, like uh, I was explaining that this is how we need to approach. This is uh, good. These are bad. These are the consequences, different consequences I was explaining to them. And uh, I took that as an opportunity to fight for freedom, for human rights, children's rights, women's rights, and uh, overall peace and democracy and stability, which was my hope and my desire to see it for Afghanistan. And it worked really nice with the help of uh, the different projects of the United States through USAID, through mili US military, through US embassy, and other uh, private and government projects that, that were going on. Like the first thing the United States uh, did to Afghanistan when they were there, uh, they imported electricity from Uzbekistan to Afghanistan. Uh, 80, 85% of the country benefited from that electricity. Uh, the uh, the roads were constructed, the highways were paved, uh, the schools were opened. We had the, the we were growing really fast and really nice because of the keen um, interest of the Afghan uh, men and women for democracy and peace for humanity. We almost had like uh, 66 uh, uh, TV channels which is very unique in the history of Afghanistan. All those TVs were equipped with many different uh, uh, reporters and uh, all kinds of resources and equipments. And their job was to promote peace, stability, democracy, and raise awareness among all those people that are kept in the darkness for many different decades in Afghanistan through the civil wars. So we had over 100 something uh, radios that were also broadcasting and helping and promoting peace, stability and democracy, enduring freedom. And uh, as well as, uh, you know, the army was growing really fast. The police was growing. The Afghan uh, National uh, Department of Security was uh, growing really it was. It became the military, Afghan military became a unique and strong military in the region uh, by the help of the United States military. That even uh, Iran or uh, the neighbor countries like Pakistan, like Tajikistan, like Uzbekistan, they were feeling a pity because they could not compete with these soldiers. They were that strong. They were that uh, interested and growing. Everything comes from the faith from the interest, from the uh, brightness and open minds. And all these open-minded Afghans, they were helping each other and we were growing. But unfortunately, uh, as Chad mentioned before, that uh, because of the big decision by President Biden, we lost everything. On the other hand, if you look at it, Afghanistan's government, the, 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 the very young democracy in Afghanistan, that was all... Uh, dependent it was not independent it was dependent on the united states financial aid the united states military support and uh, all these other different projects that were that were there from the european communities from the international community from the united states uh, but uh, 
you know, I'm not sure uh, why, but but it happened. A big decision uh, changed everything, and and also it's not only um, the United States decision; it's also the corrupt Afghan leaders that were unfortunately put in the process uh, in the leadership. The, the, some people that they had two passports, they were not Afghans, they had American passports, they had uh, passports from European countries, they had passports from neighboring countries. They were somehow through their network, through their connections, brought and put in the leadership. And this was also one of the main uh, uh, weakness that the government collapsed immediately because if the leadership was chosen from the uh, original Afghans, that the, the Afghans, uh, uh, like interpreters, like all those soldiers that nights and days, they were uh, there defending their uh, homeland. If the leadership was chosen from those uh, category, uh, I assure you that we would not be the witness of uh, this uh, shameful failure in Afghanistan because all these people like President Ghani, President Karzai was involved in many different uh, smuggling of uh, poppies. His brothers were involved. Ghani had a very um, uh, bad, corrupt history. Like when he was the minister of uh, finance, uh, finance minister in Afghanistan, uh, there were some reports that he stole a lot of money from the Ministry of Finance. And he did the same thing while at the end of his uh, presidency in Afghanistan when he was running away from the country. There was no such a pure, clean Afghan leadership on the top. We really needed a leadership. It broke from two sides. On one hand, the withdrawal of the U.S. Uh, military presence and the stop of the um, uh, financial aid for them. On the other hand, uh, the weakness and the crap leader of Afghanistan, it caused all this damage and all these, uh, in the chain of command, all these uh, lower uh, management, uh, like army, like, you know, the uh, civil institutions, they, they fail uh, very quickly. So uh, there were uh, lots of uh, improvements happening in the country, uh, even though with all that uh, crap uh, leadership that was there, it was improving every day, it, it was improving. If uh, President Biden kept like at least 1,000 soldiers in one of the bases like Bagram Air Base, which is very strategic for the United States also and for Afghanistan, I assure you that the government would still continue and because uh, everything was uh, really nice, and well um, instructed and built for them. Everything was running really nice and neat. The military could only be there just to show their presence inside the base. The Afghan army, police, and NDS was capable of controlling the front lines without the international military presence on the, on the front lines. The only thing that the Afghan army needed at that time was the maintenance of their uh, Air Force, uh, because uh, they didn't have the technicians and experts like after every plane went uh, and did the mission and came back, they needed some maintenance. And uh, there were lots of hopes and trust, and there were hundreds of thousands of Afghan men and women that loved the country 
and they were working from the deep of their heart. But, uh, you know, maybe God's plan was different and we lost everything. Well, I'm going to jump over to Chad for a moment, Aziz, because I know he's got to go, but we can carry on after we let him kind of close up on his side. Um, so, Chad, I would love to hear your perspective of, you know, realizing that there was this horrendous withdrawal. I mean, you know, the actual decision to at some point have to put a, a you know, uh, a terminality and ending to a particular conflict, obviously, you know, may have to happen if, if we're not progressing from a certain other country's perspective. But how we do that is another entire conversation. So we have this mass withdrawal. We left so many of these incredible men and women that have uh, supported you know, their own country and ours as well. Talk to me about that withdrawal, Save Our Allies, Tim Kennedy, um, all the, you know, the, the amazing people that you were around and your kind of lens on trying to basically rescue this incredible man that you've worked alongside for all these deployments. Yeah, I think, you know, by now, hopefully everybody realizes how special of a human being Aziz is. Uh, and, you know, working in the capacity we did, he, you know, he saved my life multiple times. I've watched him. I mean, he just got, I think is the highest award any Afghans ever got from, uh, from the United States was Aziz just got an award from Congress, uh, for his role. Uh, we nominated him for rescuing four Navy SEALs that were trapped behind enemy lines. And, uh, you know, uh, myself and him and, and some other people went and did that. And, you know, as he led that, led that effort and, uh, you know, it was pretty, pretty sketchy, pretty sketchy night. And uh, he put his, that was just one example. I mean, that was one we were able to talk about where he was, you know, put his life on the line. Like, again, he saved my life like three times tangibly, but probably saved my life every day. Like don't walk there. Don't eat that. Don't talk to that person. Don't, don't speak right now. Are they going to kill us? Like, you know, he saved my life every day. And he, he uh, not only, was my teammate, but my friend and, uh, you know, him, his family, they're very close to me. And I consider them, consider them family. And, uh, we had been trying for six years to get him out through that very broken immigration process called the SIV special immigrant visa process. That is only supposed to take nine months, but in his case it was six years for someone who did 15 years in special operations community, vetted, polygraphed, uh, access to top secret information, six years and not getting through that. It's supposed to take nine months. It's a broken system. And so when I seen the withdrawal happening back in, in, in as early as April, I'm like, we got to get Aziz, his wife and six kids. And I started putting some efforts together. But by the time June rolled around, we knew like this is going to have this is happening faster than we expected. We're going to have to go in now and get him. We had tried a couple of like traditional like efforts immigration wise, not just through the State Department, but through uh, United Arab Emirates. And it just wasn't happening. So we're going to have to go get him. So I started calling uh, some people uh, at late July, August, and said, oh, can we put a team together to go get him? One of the first people I called was with Tim Kennedy. Uh, not because of the, the Tim Kennedy that everybody knows publicly wise, but uh, because uh, I was looking for some specific qualifications for the guys I called. One is that they had a AFO or ASO level training, meaning they had the ability to operate independently. Uh, and had that experience and training. Uh, that was one. I was looking for special operations guys with that. Two, I was looking for mature special operations guys that had been in combat and wasn't looking to go out and get some. You know, like they weren't looking to go sow their wild oats and they had no ego, nothing left to prove. They had already been around because this wasn't a combat mission, as opposed to what some people might have looked at us doing and thought this wasn't a cowboy operation. Uh, this had to be a very mature, calculated, and planned operation to work with multinational efforts and in and, and our U.S. government. To be able to go and do this, and uh, and I didn't want any 
thing bad to happen because some immature person was trying to, you know, fill their wild oats and, and, and have some kind of angst towards the Taliban that wasn't the time and place for it. And then with Tim specifically, I knew I was going to have to raise a lot of money. Ultimately, we ended up spending about $30 million. So like uh, I needed somebody else that could help be a public face for it. You know, so Tim had all those criteria. So he's one of the first people I called. Uh, a lot of people, uh, you know, I think Joe, Joe Roberts can mention his name, uh, Recon Marine. Uh, we had some SEALs there. Uh, 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 Sean G, I can't, I can't say his full name. Uh, sea Spray, if you've seen the documentary, Sea Spray. Guy, so guys from Green Berets, uh, CIA's Ground Branch, uh, guys, we had really experienced guys. And as we were planning to go get Aziz's family, one of the guys said, hey, this is a group of 3,500 orphans. And so it was a moment where we kind of paused and said, man, like getting them would be great, but we need to get, we have that amazing group of, of talent that are willing and feel burdened to go help. Let's get, let's get as many Americans, interpreters, their families, women, children, Christians that be persecuted. Let's get as many people as we can. And, uh, and I think that was a call that we felt everybody there, I think is, you know, pretty strong people of faith. And we all felt like God had burdened our heart to go help. And, uh, and I think that, that obedience to say, okay, yes, we're going to do it. Not knowing exactly how, uh, being honest, uh, we knew we had experience, but you know, the plan, like we're going to do this impossible thing and some doors got to open that we don't have any control open. So they had an element of faith there beyond that, that decision of obedience, uh, to do that, uh, to meet that burden on our hearts. I think we, we witnessed a, a, a sheer miracle and I won't, I won't preach to everybody, but I will say that, uh, it, it was certainly in my perspective, a divine miracle because what happened in the next three days after the decision was something that I'm not capable of or smart enough of, or can't even explain. Um, Sarah Verardo got in touch with the Joint Chiefs. The Joint Chiefs, um, you know, love or hate General Milley. And I know that's most people probably in the military community don't like General Milley. Uh, but he gave us permission to, to go on that airport and be the only civilians there in that airport to be able to go off base and, and do a civilian evacuation. So we got that door. That is an impossible door to open, by the way. That in itself. Secondly, uh, they agreed to uh, take our manifest and, and approve them to be able to move people out. So now we had a we had the ability for the United States military, the Joint Chiefs, to allow us on the airport and then approve our manifest. Which, by the way, the DoD planes flying out didn't get approved manifest. The NGOs we had to, which is really good, you know, that we're not flying out any random person. And I know a lot of people were concerned, and I was too, that we're bringing out people that we know who know who they are. All of our groups, we knew they were SIVs, P1, P2 visas are legitimately orphans or widows uh, or Christians that be persecuted, like pretty legitimate valid uh, validation of all our people that we got out. In addition, uh, in addition, I think a lot of people had said it's like a cowboy effort, like we're going in there, getting away in the military. If anybody paused with common sense for a moment and said, do this group of veterans, how would it be possible for us to go in a military DOD controlled airport? go outside the wire, rescue people, load them with C-17 airplanes and fly them. Like that's not even possible. So the, the, the thought that we would like cowboyishly go and, and force our way onto a DOD controlled airport in the middle of a, a war zone and uh, evacuate people. It's just, it's just ludicrous that people would even think that, but people, people, you know, people thought that made that accusation. It was very coordinated with the United States government and in uh, a legitimate effort uh, that was all done uh, in, in cooperation with the United States uh, uh, DOD and and, and, a, and the Joint Chiefs. So that was one miracle, in my opinion. Two, if you're going to bring someone outside of the outside of the a country without a visa, you can't bring them somewhere without any kind of permissions, or that's human trafficking. So you have to have permission. So we called uh, some connections we had at the United Arab Emirates, the royal family, and we asked them for permission to be able to get on, on that airport. 
uh, onto the uh, into UAE, and they offered us their humanitarian center uh, and, and doctors and everything we would have never thought of in a humanitarian center, and said, "We're going to roll out the red carpet. If you get these people here, we, we're going to take care of them." And then the State Department would have to move them on from there. We're not bringing people to America. We're bringing people to Lily Pad Place. State Department's responsibility to say yes or no to America or any other country they would go to. Uh, so that was another miracle that we've seen happen. And then the UAE came back and said, in, in addition to that, we're going to give you a C-17 plane. If you fill it up, we'll give you a second one. Uh, and the pilots to do it. And we're going to let you have access to uh, operation center to run your operation out of. So they rolled out the red carpet for us. Amazing people at the UAE and the Royal family. So big thanks to them and definitely uh, go out of them way to say thank you in the book, you know, in the book that we have uh, with them. And then, uh, then the last thing that I thought was just crazy was that, was that after all that happened, the next day, Glenn Beck calls me and the only weapon that Glenn Beck has is, is a microphone. Right. And uh, you know, and he, and he has a big one. And he just wanted to do something like a lot of people. He just wanted to do something. He did what he knew how to do. And he went on the radio and asked for support. And he thought he'd get a couple of thousand dollars. Well, he got, he got $21 million in like three days. And, uh, and then he uh, ultimately got like 40 something million dollars. And he called me up and it's like, Hey, we, we got this money that we just raised and we don't have an operation. Uh, can you, wh- what can we do? And that's, and uh, so I said, we, we could buy planes. We could rent, you know, pay for planes. And uh, so he put a guy named Rudy Atala in touch with me and Rudy's amazing guy, uh, military veteran and specializes in this kind of stuff. And we worked together and, and was able to pay for a lot of planes. So all those things, like I said, any one of those things would have went wrong and would not been able to do this. Everything came together in a small window of time. And a guy just opened these doors that allowed us the opportunity to go in and help. And we went in. Uh, I was in Abu Dhabi doing operations side. Uh, we had a ground team at the airport in Kabul going out. Uh, some U.S. military personnel, special operations personnel was even able to work with us. Uh, that's who actually grabbed disease uh, for us. Uh, amazing guys from the U.S. Air Force. Um, special operations were able to grab uh, Aziz and we write about it in a book. And, uh, and we got Aziz's family out that day, about 180 people. The next day, we got like 800 people. The next day, like 1,000 people. And honestly, it was all a blur because... Our team in Abu Dhabi, our team in the States, our team at the airport in Kabul, no one slept because if you stop to sleep for like five minutes, like somebody's dying because you're sleeping. So it was like sleeping and, you know, kind of nodding off when you could, but it was like nonstop. I mean, sea spray lost 37 pounds in 10 days, just not stopping on the ground, moving, grabbing people. And, uh, and when the Abbey gate was blown up and 13 of our service members died, uh, that day, the gates were rolled shut and the evacuations were over. Uh, at the airport, and we realized we had got out like twelve thousand people, and the, and at that moment, the U.S. military had to leave, uh, and we realized we didn't we didn't have to leave. Like we're not in the military, we don't have to leave. We could stay. And uh, the news was reporting there was a hundred Americans still there. That's what the White House said. We knew on the ground, and this isn't a political debate. Like I'm telling you, uh, firsthand, there were thousands of Americans still there. And uh, but it doesn't matter if they were the White House said there's a hundred, or we said there's a thousand. One American left behind us is, is, is one too many. Like you, we don't leave Americans behind where I come from. Like even some trader idiot, like Joe Birdall, like we knew we were going to lose people's lives to go rescue him. But if Americans left behind their, their choice or not, like you will scorch the earth around them to go get them. That's like the, the promise that the American people have uh, when they're abroad in dangerous places. And uh, so we chose to stay and we ended up uh, working with a lot of other amazing nonprofits over the next two months at a place called Mazda Sharif and flew out another 5,000 people total the evacuation uh, that we were part of at, at 17,000 people. And then, uh, then we knew we still, there was still more to do all the, all the Afghans that moved to a place called the Panjir Valley, where Ahmad Masood's son was leading a resistance and they felt safe there. 
and uh, they were trying to cross into Tajikistan. But if anybody geographically familiar with that area, there's like 25,000 foot peaks. Uh, and if you made it through there, like a family would take like a week to make it through those mountains, valleys to get to the border. Well, if you made it there and didn't know where you were going, you might end up at a thousand foot cliff. Well, the Panjir River is like category five in some points. Slushy, like, I mean, when I say slushy, like the water is so cold that it stops, it freezes. So navigating that geographically is difficult, maybe impossible. Uh, then you have the Taliban controlling that border uh, with checkpoints every mile. Uh, and then um, and then you had the Chinese military on that border keeping people in Afghanistan. You had the Russian military. And I mean, we uh, they were that border was saturated. And then you had Tajikistan border police. So uh, that border was very difficult to cross. So we said they're never going to be able to cross this. But one more thing we can do is we can go on the other side and do what, you know, kind of a traditional recon, a force recon job. We could do route reconnaissance on that other side or fording, fording routes, which means going across and looking at how to cross rivers. That's a fording site report. We could provide that information. So we decided to put a small two-man team together, myself and a Staff Sergeant Dennis Price, who was just got off of active duty, uh, was like the perfect guy for me for the job. He had, he had served at JSOC. He was a, a force recon Marine of the year a couple of times, scout sniper, like taught scout snipers. At like He taught like all over the world, even even taught Army SF sniper school, which is like, I think the only non-SF guy to teach there. Very highly skilled uh, scout sniper, which we didn't need a sniper, we, but the skill sets that come with a guy like that is really high level. And so uh, I, I asked his command because I knew his commander, Lieutenant Colonel uh, Tommy Waller, I said, can you guys cut staff sort of price loose for a humanitarian effort? Because, you know, the military wasn't allowed to participate. And he said, I don't know, let's put it in writing. And we did. And mer another miracle, the Marine Corps let him come with us. And, uh, you know, and uh, he came with me and the two of us flew into Tajikistan and we spent 10 days on that border doing about 90 miles of border reconnaissance at night time. We would, uh, once we identified a crossing, we would swim across the, the Panjshir river in Afghanistan and, and build the routes on both sides and provide that information and reports to some of our government intelligence agencies that wanted that information, non-government organizations like nonprofits that were doing evacuations, and then to the Afghan people stuck in uh, the Panjshir Valley, and so their commandos could lead, lead them out across. We did that for about 10 days, and uh, I mean, the border was saturated with you know foreign intelligence units and Chinese special operations and R Russians and Tajiks, and on the other side, the uh, you know Taliban checkpoints everywhere. I mean, it, we, there are times we were about within thirty yards of, of Taliban, and and uh, and um, you know, but you know, we were able to provide some really really incredible intelligence uh, to be able to get people out safely. And and that, as that as that wrapped up, that kind of ended our efforts and uh, the most that we could do. We've I mean, it still is heartbreaking. Because there's so many people that we, 70,000 people sounds like a lot, but there's 40 million people in Afghanistan and 20 million women and children that are still going to be persecuted and sexually enslaved. And, and, uh, you know, I think of these 20 million women and we could have did so much more. And right now I still get emails every day, people begging, like literally begging voice clips, begging, like, please, my family's being killed. And you know, I wish there was more that we could do. And we've done everything that we can so far. And our state department has really just blocked us from being able to help anymore. And, uh, and so I thought all this belonged, uh, in a kind of journal to tell the American people uh, in the world, not just American people, but the world, what really happened uh, in Afghanistan. I tried to write it in a non-biased political way. I'm a super conservative dude, but I didn't want to make it a political attack job in the White House. But, you know, it just, just kind of the truth kind of falls that way. Uh, but it's just the truth of what happened. And, and it's my story with disease. Uh, the evacuations, and uh, we put it all in the book. Uh, I have amazing publisher Thomas Nelson, Harper Collins, and we. And uh, so the book is. I don't know when this is dropping, but Saving Aziz, 
uh, had a mission to save help one turn into calling to save thousands. And it's uh, January 17th. The book drops, but you can pre-order it on Amazon and, and, or any, any bookstore has it. And uh, it is being made into a motion picture film. And uh, you know, I, I really don't care about all any of that other than people need to know the truth about what happened. Uh, so it never happens again. Uh, one for the, the sake of the national security of America, because we need we need allies around the world who's going to depend on us. And two, uh, we you know it, we just can't do that. We gave up the most strategic place on the globe between Iraq, Iran, Russia, and China. That wasn't ours to give away. It was the entire international community's uh, effort that was supporting and advising the Afghan National Army and Afghan National Police. You know, British and Germany, Germany and Canada. Everybody was doing the right thing and working in a total international coalition to keep terrorism at bay in the mountains of Afghanistan. We had 2,500 troops there one time. We still have we still have 80,000 troops in Japan since World War II and 35,000 in South Korea and 40,000 in Germany. Why do we need to leave the most strategic place on the globe to turn that turn that strategic location over to our enemies, Iran, China, Pakistan's ISI, uh, Russia? I mean, why do we have to turn this place over? It was too, completely political, cost American lives. Uh, and abandoned our allies and weakened our security in the world and made the world a much more dangerous place. And uh, so the world needs to know the truth about that. And by the way, the book was spent five months at the, at the Pentagon to get uh, the DOD review and got redacted. Uh, but nonetheless, I, I didn't uh, I didn't take any of the redactions out. So you see all the, the black lines stayed in it. So the American people and the people of the world can see. You know what the government doesn't want them to say. So, <laughs> well, Chad, I want to thank you so much. I know you've got to leave us now. Um, I would love to actually do a part two with you because we didn't even really scrape the surface of not only you know the the military side for you, but also you know martial arts and some of these other areas, mental health, yeah. mighty oaks. Anytime, let's let's come back on and do it do it again. I apologize I, uh, that I have to go to another another one, and uh, but I would love to come back on anytime. And Aziz is free, so Aziz could talk prep for everyone this. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. So I'll, I'll go back to you then, Aziz. Um, so again, here you are, six years of trying to, you know, get to the US after, you know, this amazing service that you had for your country and, and you know, obviously the danger that was to you and your family. Walk me through that kind of um, build up towards 2021 and, and the evacuation through your eyes. Uh it was really challenging. It was really challenging, really heartbreaking for me to see that happen. I did not predict that. I uh, learned that I, uh, I believed that the country will collapse as uh, that quick because I was really counting on the Afghan National Army, the police, the Indians, because they were equipped with all kinds of resources, training, and you know, physical capacity. But uh, because of uh, the leadership that it collapsed and the Doha agreement, uh, it, uh, it actually uh, became a chaos. And uh, as my SIV application was a total failure, every time I emailed uh, the USCIS and asked them about the status of my uh, SIV uh, visa, they came with the same questions or same reasonings. Like, first of all, they were asking for a contract number that was not possible for me at all because I served under a classified version contract that even an American cannot have access to that one. And uh, on the other hand, uh, they were uh, saying that, you know, that I needed a letter from like a um, US Army general. Uh, the, the team guys, they provided a letter from uh, James Edward Kraft, uh, 
brigadier general who was the assistant of the resolute support in Kabul, but still that contract number was missing over there. And again, uh, it went to the missing uh, list of the documents. And uh, uh, so I was just waiting and praying and uh, hoping that, you know, one day it will happen. But when uh, President Biden announced the, with the total uh, withdrawal of the, the, the military troops, and still I didn't take it serious because I was thinking that we have 300,000 Afghan armies and thousands of police and Indians. At least it will continue like maybe three years, maybe four years. There will be fights. But the Taliban, on the other hand, when you look at it, they were not that much. They were only like 60,000, 70,000 uh, barbaric uh, group of Taliban that were trained and kept in safe havens inside Pakistan over the last two decades. And uh, I did not see a total collapse of the government. So I was really counting on it. And then uh, as the, soon as uh, President Biden announced and the Doha agreement was done and you know, I was uh, witnessing the collapse of the different provinces of Afghanistan. Afga Afghanistan has 34 provinces. I was witnessing like those provinces that are more uh, to the eastern side of uh, uh, Pakistan. They are connected with Pakistan, like Jalalabad, like Kaust province, like Kandahar. They collapsed immediately. And when they collapsed... Uh, the, uh, the, the this barbaric regime, uh, the, the Taliban, they killed hundreds of uh, uh, commandos. They six enslaved their uh, females, and uh, they uh, tied people. They killed people. Then they hanged them on the trees. They hanged them on on the walls, and it was really heartbreaking. So as continuously it was coming, so I, I went to my uh, safe room. I got out all my guns and ammo. I was living in a house that had like five stores and I put my guns in each corner. I decided to myself, if they come from this corner, I will shoot them from here. If they come from this one, I will use this gun and ammunition. So I got my, my readiness and as I got my readiness, I was waiting and uh, I was also contacting with Chad and Daniel Stinson and uh, the other teammates to you know, find a, a way to get out because if it was only about me, I would get my guns and ammunition. I would run away to the mountains and continue the resistance against them. But it was uh, when you have a family, I have three daughters, three sons and my wife. And it was really, really difficult for me. The, the, the challenges, the struggles that I experienced in my childhood, in my life, my children didn't see that because I worked hard for them. And, you know, my children had a really good uh, childhood and a really good uh, life. They did not know about the uh, consequences of what I was doing and uh, they didn't have any idea what, what was coming at them. So they were, the, the kids and my wife, they, were, they seemed nervous as they were watching the news and um, they were looking at me and they were becoming suspicious every minute after that, like after every provinces collapsed and you know the, the, there was news on the TV that, they killed this many soldiers, the, the sixth enslaved this many girls on the northern provinces of Afghanistan. They uh, killed this many interpreters, uh, those who were allies of the United States. They captured them, they tortured them, and they killed them. And they forced married their daughters. And uh, according to the uh, justification that they have from the Quran, uh, the Muslim uh, religious book, 
that you know when they kill the people or the people who work for the infidels because they call us infidels all the americans the interpreters the ex-afghan army or government and uh, you know they, they they had their own justifications they would just force marry their wives and daughters and and uh, you know i was contacted with chad and dan and they were praying over me through the phone and they're like hey brother don't worry i'm in washington dc talking to some very uh, high-ranking guys they know how uh, hard uh, you work for this nation they have your documents and we are trying to come up with a plan and we will save you no worries on the 15th of august the government collapsed the five days that i experienced in my life from 15 to 20 i never and ever seen such a horrible time in my life although i was a strong man i had military experience i had um, you know all kinds of uh, experiences in my life like hunger uh, i had i knew how to how to handle it uh, those, the challenge that was coming, but because of my children and my daughters, every minute I look at them and what was coming at us, I was losing my internal uh, uh, spiritual energy. My body was dying totally. I don't know what was happening. Although I was trying to hold myself very strong and carrying my guns with me and ammunition, and I knew that my friends will come and save me, but still my body was losing the energy and I was becoming weaker and weaker. Like on the 15th, when uh, uh, Daniel Stenson, he called me and told me, hey Aziz, we are in Abu Dhabi. We are coming to Kabul to save you. But before that, I need you to go and do me a recon. It was like around uh, noon time that he called me. Uh, I could still see the Afghan soldiers in the capital because the capital did not collapse on the 15th as I was witness of that. And uh, I called this driver because I could not use my own cars uh, because they were really famous people knew me. I called this taxi driver who is a friend of me. I told him, hey, I need your help. Come home and take me with you. I got my guns and my camera. I did a recon around the Kabul International Airport. I took pictures all the way through the US Embassy, the different gates that the Kabul uh, International Airport had. My cousin, who was a border police inside the Kabul International Airport, with the help of him, I got inside the uh, international terminal, the local civilian terminal. I took pictures because my brother Dan, who was in Abu Dhabi, he told me that he, need, uh, he needed to have like a very good recon. I needed to uh, make him like a presentation PowerPoint so that when they come here, where they can bring people in and where they can process them, kind of like a CBP process, because they need to check documents, they need to do fingerprints, they need to do eye prints, interview. So they wanted to make sure that the bad guys do not get inside all these immigrants that are trying to flee the country. And, uh, you know, I came back home and uh, I provided all these things and sent it to him. But then the next day, uh, that night when they landed in Kabul airport, like in the next morning, they sent me a GPS location. They're like, hey, Aziz, you and your family and children, you know, come to this location and call us. We will come to get you. As soon as I tried there, I saw that it was a chaos. It was not possible for me to go inside. First of all, like right before the government collapsed, a few days before my wife had appendix and we did an operation on her 
But unfortunately, because of the low quality of medicines in Afghanistan and the inexperienced doctors, the, the appendix area was infected badly. It was, you know, full of all the dirty water and she could not walk with me. Uh, she, it, she was really experiencing pain and she was crying. He, she's like, hey, Aziz, I cannot do this. I would rather die in my house instead of die on the streets and people step on me because that's what happened. Uh, the, when we faced uh, the Taliban checkpoints, they were shooting at as I was all covered. I had my Afghan jammies and then uh, uh, I slowly sneaked in from them. Then in the second line, there was the Afghan zero units. The zero units were the the guys that were trained by the CIA to counter terrorism uh, at the ex-government time. So they were using it during the evacuation in the, in the second line of security around the airport. And, um, you know, then they started shooting at me. And then I explained to them and, you know, I showed them my documents and stuff. And then they let me to go inside. As soon as I tried to go inside, then all these young Marines are over there with their Humvees and tongs and, you know, they are shooting at me and I'm like, hey, man, I'm one of the United States allies. These are my documents. Please give me a chance. I want to show you my documents. And they're like, no, no, I don't know you. You're not supposed to be here. Go, go. And they're firing at me and firing. And then I got really disappointed and I called Chad and I'm like, hey, brother, it's not possible. Those guys that they're inside the airport, the team guys for Chad and Dan to is, is it possible to come outside and save us? He's like, let me talk to them. He talked to them, but for some reason, I think the military did not let these guys to come out. So uh, they told me to tell these Marine guys that I work for Chad. He's a famous guy. And, <laughs> you know, if you know him. And I told them, I'm like, hey, Google Chad. Do you know Chad Robichaud? Google him. He's my brother. He's my friend. I work for him. And... Uh, you know, still, they refused me. They rejected me. They didn't accept me. We had to come back home. We faced uh, several Taliban checkpoints on the road between the home and the airport. I saw ladies uh, who were shot at their heads because of all these different firings that the Taliban, the zero units, and the Marines were doing to spread the crowd out because everybody wanted to save their own interpreters or allies like the brits were trying to save their interpreters canadians italians germans australians you know the all the nato uh, uh, groups were there uh, there were different kinds of uh, processings and every gate was busy by uh, a specific country so we came back home although in one of the checkpoints they shot at us while we were coming home because my friend, this guy who was a taxi driver, I have my six kids with me and myself, we were all packed up. They tried to stop us and I have my documents with me. I told my uh, friend, the taxi driver, to not stop because if they search and they see these documents, we are done. We are done on the, on the middle of the street. So you have to run away. They shoot at us. Um, the, luckily, we, they didn't shoot on the car, but they shoot in the air. So we ran away into the uh, streets and came home like five days in a row. After several times, these guys would send me the GPS locations that, hey, Aziz, try this location. When I tried that location, as soon as I arrived near the airport, hundreds of thousands of people are outside the airport 
elbowing each other, pushing each other, trying to get inside the airport to get on the plane and leave the country. It was not possible for me. So it was really disappointing and heartbreaking. And every time I tried it, we failed. So I called this guy, Sean, who was inside the airport with Alex, the teammates for Chad. I told him, brother, it's not possible. It's because my wife is really in pain. My kids are crying. And uh, if you guys at least come by the gate or at least come uh, to that area where the Marines are, at least tell the Marines I will pass the Taliban, I will pass the zero units, but tell the Marines not to shoot at me and let me in. Then he's like, okay, send me a family picture so I can recognize you among the crowd. I send him a picture of my whole family and myself, and they send me their pictures and another GPS location on the 20th. That was the day after a few hours of wait and a lot of, uh, you know, firings at us, accepting a lot of risks. We were finally able to, uh, you know, see each other in the crowd. He was by the gate, like, 150 meters across the street. I saw him. I'm like, hey, Sean, Sean, Sean. He didn't hear. Then I'm like, hey, Aziz, Aziz, Aziz. And Alex told him, hey, that's Aziz. That's your man. He's like, hey, man, we have been looking for you. I'm like, tell those zero units not to shoot at me because <laughs> they were shooting at me. And uh, they let me in. So I, But this time what happened was that I left my children and my wife like, uh, a few kilometers away from the crowd inside the taxi with my friend, I came by myself. But once uh, I met Sean and uh, he told the zero units that he needs to bring his family in, do not shoot at him, help him. I called my brother-in-law um, and uh, my friend uh, who was in the taxi and told him that, hey, please come and take this route. I send them the GPS location. They're like, hey, the Taliban are shooting at us. I told them, pretend that, you know, we are not coming to the airport. You are crossing the road. Once you arrive to this location, just sneak in. I'm here. I waited with the zero units. He came and I received my family after a lot of uh, risks and difficulties. And, you know, my wife was still crying. Uh, we saved her brother inside the airport. Then I received a phone call from Abu Dhabi, from Daniel Stinson. Uh, my brother, he's like, hey, Aziz, there is this girl uh, Hudebia, she's an American University of Afghanistan college student. She's there by herself. Her family is in Pakistan. Uh, she's been there for three, four nights behind the airport in the crowd. She's trying to get in. They are not allowing her. Somebody pushed her from the wall. She fall off, fell off and she's all wounded and, you know, really in pain. Bring her food, water. Bring her with your family. Uh, you are either bringing her or you're not coming. <laughs> I'm like, damn. I had to accept the risk again, leave my family inside. But this time I was happy. At least my family is safe. So I came back outside, looked for this girl for a few hours. I found her finally and brought her in. And uh, again, you know, several times I got shot at, you know, the Taliban, Marines and the zero units again, then I had to call Alex and Sean and they had to come outside and same kind of procedure, uh, help me out and then get in inside the airport. As soon as I was inside the airport, because this girl was all weak and wounded, you know, her hands were black, the neck was black. She was all, 
in pain. I was holding her like this to bring her in uh, so she doesn't fall. And my wife noticed that. She's like, oh, what's that young girl doing in my husband's hand? <laughs> <laughs> she was really shocked. And she thought that that's my second wife. <laughs> I'm trying to rescue her. <laughs> then, uh, you know, I brought her in and I explained everything to her. I told her to calm down. She's, you know, this is a dance friend. She's an American uh, university college student. She's by herself. She has no body, so we need to save her. And I brought her with myself as a daughter into the humanitarian city. It was the first flight that myself, that girl, and a few other guys in that plane, we were evacuated into the Abu Dhabi uh, humanitarian city. This humanitarian city was, uh, it was not a humanitarian city. It was actually built, a new city was built by the royal family in Abu Dhabi for the coronavirus patients. But since because they didn't use it for that one, they give it to us to use it. And, uh, you know, they locked us inside. They interviewed us, screened us, got all our information and put us in one of the blocks because we were not vaccinated and there was a fear of spread of coronavirus. We had to stay in quarantine for almost a month. And then every two days or three days, the doctors would come behind the, the door and do the swap. You know, I hate that swap thing. <laughs> and uh, for all the children, and once the uh, U.S. consulate was inside the humanitarian city, the Afghan embassy, all these 10, 12 NGOs were there to interview the people to find out who is who, uh, who is here, who, who has been evacuated. There, is, there were no clear instructions. There were no uh, specific procedures. And, you know, they would send these buses behind one building and call, like, for example, 10, 20 rooms. All the people would storm and push themselves to get in the bus quickly, go to the U.S. consulate and get processed and come to the United States. The people did not have patience and they did the same actions like they did it in the Kabul airport. So uh, what happened was I uh, noticed this and I took it as a serious problem. And I had to come outside using my American network and connections to tell the Arab CIDs to unlock me from the building. I had to walk building by building, floor by floor, knock on the doors. Like in one building, there were 60 rooms. In each room, there was like four or five uh, people knocking there and bring all the people in the walkway and talk to them and tell them, hey, guys, we are in the safety We need to understand, we need to cooperate, we should not push each other, it's shame, it's bad. We need to let the, US, the guys at the U.S. Embassy to do their job, the guys at the NGOs, the Afghan Embassy. Most of these pe people, they did not have documents like marriage certificate, like uh, passports, like Afghan ID cards. So uh, I, uh, first of all, I set like a communication channel within all the buildings, like for example, I told them that in each floor, you guys need to come up with a leader. It's very difficult to communicate. You need to come up with a leader. Everyone will be processed. No one will be left behind. But all we need to do is cooperate with each other. So the, the floor leaders are assigned. And every day, I had to talk like to more than 120 people, 20 leaders, every one of them sending me messages. Hey, there is a, a newly baby born over here. We need a doctor. Hey, we need, uh, you know, this guy is sick. Or, you know, many different scenarios and uh, difficulties. 
I almost had a, a stroke, like a heart attack. Like my left side was all paralyzed. One morning I could not wake up from the bed because of the pressure of the work. The, the whole these thousands of people were, you know, talking to their leaders and the leaders were talking to me. And finally, after creating communication channels, we ended up uh, assigning building leaders to make the communication channel smaller. So the floor leaders report to the block leaders, then the block leaders report to the cluster leaders, like six blocks were in one cluster. And then the cluster leader directly report to me. Then I had to report it, like, for example, to the Ministry of Health or the U.S. Embassy, the Afghan Embassy. And we were finally able to create documents through the Afghan embassy for these people, like marriage certificates, which was a very uh, need for these people to process them. Like, for example, if one interpreter uh, wanted to come to uh, United States through this uh, humanitarian parole, they, they, they needed the, the USCIS needed some documents to prove uh, their, uh, you know, uh, complete the formal process, like, you know, for the wife. She, he could not bring the wife unless she had a marriage certificate. But then the Afghan embassy was able to create the, the embassy because all these soldiers, most of, most of them were soldiers that, uh, you know, ran away from uh, their uh, battalions or companies and they left all their documents. They couldn't bring it with them because of the fear of the Taliban that they will be captured on the road to the airport and they will kill them. Uh, in the first category, like we processed all those people who had American pro uh, passports. We processed those and finished them, sent them because that was easy. And then in the second, all the green card holders. Then after that, all those people that had families and relatives in the United States. And then after that, the people who worked uh, for the army or uh, government or different projects, they needed to contact their supervisors and the supervisors needed to get in contact with the U.S. Uh, consulate over there to vouch for them that I know this guy, this is my recommendation later, HR later, kind of to understand that, you know, who is who, and then process them and bring them. Uh, in the middle of the night, like the doctors would call me, hey Aziz, um, we are here with many different vaccines for these people, like coronavirus vaccines, like the Marcellino vaccine, chickenpox vaccine. There were uh, 10 or 9 vaccines that needed to be done on each uh, man and woman before they are even uh, transferred to United States, because that was a requirement by the USCIS. And, you know, again, I had to manage and use these leaders with the help of these building floor leaders. We were able to manage everything and process everyone. And uh, finally, we are here. <laughs> I spent almost like nine months over there and almost like three or four protests happened at me because when you are working for public, it's not easy. You know, I did not have a salary. I was uh, helping these people voluntarily. I was using my daughter and my son, uh, like most of these people that worked for the CIA, they were illiterate people. They had HR letter, recommendation letters from the CIA, but they were not able to file an application with the USCIS. So I asked Chad and Daniel Stenson and these guys from the NGOs, the Americans, that we needed laptops and printers to bring them in so that we need to start uh, filing these cases for these guys. Otherwise, it was not possible for them to process it. But most of them, uh, you know, they were, the, the cases were processed over there at the humanitarian city, and now they are here in many different states of the United States. 
Well, it's amazing. And you're given such a different perspective than, you know, most people would hear, even even the people that have been on here so far. And I'm so glad that we got to, to, to talk longer. Um, a couple of questions. Firstly, you know, you spend your whole life, well, I rephrase that, you spend most of your life in Afghanistan, you spend some of your time in, in Dubai, and now you find yourself in the United States, this country where so many of these men and women that you served alongside were from. Talk to me about that journey for you and your family from Afghanistan to Texas. Well, uh, the, uh, it's actually a very good journey. Even in Afghanistan, we spent a very good time, although it was uh, there were hardships, difficulties, and many different uh, economical challenges in our life. Uh, but there were some rest restrictions in Afghanistan, like uh, my daughter, my sons could go to the uh, gymnastics club, but for my daughters, there were no opportunities over there. There were um, uh, schools that my daughters could go to school, but uh, you know, uh, I had bodyguards over there um, because of what I was doing. You know, my family had the security from the Ministry of Interior Affairs in Afghanistan, and everywhere my daughters or my sons, including to school club or uh, the people's wedding or funeral, they go, they were escorted. Because uh, uh, for the team that I was working, there was a fear that the you know bad guys would probably kidnap my uh, daughters and then uh, you know it, it will be difficult for me to continue the job. So they had given me all kinds of protection at that time. And uh, it was more of a life of, with fear, with anxiety, frustration, every day. Uh, there was chances of kidnapping, chances of, you know, being robbed, chances of being shot at because of being an ally to the United States. Um, there were all kinds of chances. Um, uh, our movements were very limited in Afghanistan. We would not move very often like we do over here, uh, only when it was necessary, we were, we were moving. But uh, the time when we spent in Dubai, like before the humanitarian city, when we, we also spent some time over there in Ajman, uh, but then uh, my wife, uh, she didn't have the patience of being by herself over there, not knowing the language, with very little kids, she got bored and then she had to come back to Afghanistan. And also uh, when we were going to these uh, people's wedding or the funeral or these big gatherings, some people respected us, some people hated us because of being an ally to the United States, which is natural. You know, when you are a famous man, you, you have some enemies, you have always, there are some bad guys that hate you. And um, overall, it was a very challenging process of life in Afghanistan for me. Every minute, every second, I was uh, uh, watching over my kids and my family, including doing all these different jobs that I was traveling into different risky and dangerous areas, but still I would control and check on my children. But once uh, we came over here into United States, I have a peace of mind. By the grace of God, I'm very, um, you know, uh, my mind is really peaceful because now I'm not worried about uh, to call uh, the bodyguards to take my children to school. The school bus comes in the neighborhood. My kids go and walk in the bus freely, independently. They go to their school. And when there is a need or something, their counselors call me and they tell me that these are the things that needs to be taken care of for the child, for the betterment and the improvement on their education. 
Everything is so responsibly done here in the United States in uh, contrast to the Afghanistan, because in Afghanistan, everything was so anagram. You could not, you know, plan anything over here. Over here, everything is very well managed. Um, uh, you know, the kids uh, have all kinds of uh, opportunities, like my daughters. They are, uh, nowadays, they are going to the martial arts, including going to school. They have joined the Taekwondo martial arts. Um, and uh, right across the 1488, they go over there every evening. They spend a couple of hours. They have made some friends. And uh, I'm so happy for them. And I'm very grateful. And I'm thanking the Lord for, for giving me this opportunity to, you know, that I was hoping for, uh, for the whole country in Afghanistan. But at least, you know, I received it for my own children here. Beautiful. Well, one more area before we wrap up. You are now working with the Mighty Oaks Foundation. That was, uh, you know, a nonprofit that that Chad founded. When we do a part two with him, we'll probably explore a lot more about his mental health journey. But I know it's a very powerful one, and ultimately, you know, his faith was one of the big elements that allowed him to to kind of, you know, heal and now create this incredible foundation. There's very little discussion on mental health when it comes to maybe some of the other cultures in the Middle East. It's a very Western problem, I think, at the moment. Um, but obviously, it's a universal problem. It's a global problem. With you having the trauma that you had, you know, as you said, even as a young kid watching your your classmates get blown up by, you know, uh, abandoned Russian um uh, you know, explosives, etc. And then you have all these conflicts, and then you fled your country, and then you go back to your country, and then you're watching the impact on your own children. What has been your mental health journey? You know, what were your lows? And what were some of the things that allowed you to process your own trauma? Well, uh, to be honest with you, uh, mm, right uh, after in uh, 2016, when that project that I worked for was terminated, and you know, up to that minute, I was busy, I had a purpose, I was working really hard, and uh, you know, once the project was terminated by the United States government, I lost my job and I became to sit in the house. And I had my own company, a uh, private company that I did the um, uh, export of uh, the Afghan fruits to India through the air corridor. At that time, they made an air corridor because we could not send them by the ground. The, by the ground, every time we send something through Pakistan to India, it was being blocked by the uh, Pakistani government because they're always a big obstacle to the Afghan merchandise. So using the air uh, corridor, um, I was doing my export business. Uh, my mental health was uh, very well, but between uh, 2017 to 2019, there were some ups and downs because uh, most of the time I was staying in the house and I was not uh, going out like I used to do when I used to work for the military. And, uh, you know, just sitting in the house, I kind of uh, faced to alcohol and drinking lots of alcohol and uh, this uh, alcohol and being free and sitting in the house and, uh, you know, not being a man who was once before, uh, this kind of, you know, remembering my past and all those ups and downs and difficulties. 
Uh, and actually, I got PTSD. I did not even know the name of PTSD over there. It's the same thing. Every culture, every uh, geographical place that you go, it's the same thing. But uh, because there were not enough doctors, not experts, uh, no research centers to find out what's happening, you know. I was, uh, you know, remembering and there was a gap, a spiritual gap. I was not really a man of God. And, you know, I thought that, that uh, we grow just like uh, um, uh, the trees and then we die and then there is no accountability. There is no life hereafter. I didn't believe in all that. So uh, all that led me to, you know, kind of get really nervous and frustration and my hands start shaking. And one, uh, you know, every day I was talking to my wife and, you know, uh, she was, she was like, you know, why don't you go outside and do something and you're sitting in the house and, you know, be, I became a burden, <laughs> burden to her. And uh, I almost uh, shot myself one day. I went to downstairs and I got my Glock and I said, okay, this is it. This is the end of it because I do not have a purpose because now I see I'm losing the respect even in the family. And, uh, you know, because of all drinking this alcohol, all these evil things uh, circling in my mind, I'm like, let's finish it. I cannot uh, tolerate this. I closed the door, like on the first floor of that house, it was my office. I closed the door and I start drinking this bottle of uh, Russian vodka and I loaded the gun. I put it right here to shoot myself uh, that uh, my two little ones, uh, the eight-year-old is a girl and the seven-year-old is a boy. Uh, at that time, they were even younger, one year or a couple years. They knocked behind this door and with this very beautiful childish voice, they called me daddy, daddy and they start crying. That actually, hearing that, uh, prevented me from uh, doing a suicide. And I got mad and I start shooting the gun and the ceiling on the floor. I hit my TV, my computer, my carpet and everything. I emptied the whole magazine over there to release everything from there. And then uh, my wife came and the neighbors got scared. and. You know, I experienced it. I experienced PTSD in my life, not even know the name of it or the process of it. But then uh, when I sat down with myself after that night, I thought with myself that I need to become a man of God. I need to uh, study the gospel of God and I need to, you know, start praying and I need to find some activities. I found me a couple of uh, retired uh, colonels from the Afghan army in the neighborhood and we started walking like for three hours in the day, walking in the mountains. I, uh, uh, you know, kept myself busy and also my sons uh, were walking with me. And, uh, you know, that really helped me to, to overcome the PTSD. Otherwise it was getting me, it got me. It was almost like 75, 80%. It was going to be 100% at me, but because of the blessing of God, and referring to him and crying to him in the middle of the night and praying and studying the gospel of God led uh, me to walk away from it and, you know, uh, overcome finally. Well, firstly, it's fascinating because you use the word burden. And that is one of the things that I don't think people really understand when it comes to suicide. 
a lot of people will call suicide very selfish. Oh, how could they do that? You know, what the, why would they do that to their family? And when you listen to people like yourself that have been right there, it's a selfless act in their broken mind at that point, you know, through alcohol, through trauma, etc. And if I remove myself, I'm the problem for my family. If I remove myself from this world, my family will be happier. Now, it doesn't make any sense, but that's what I hear. And it's so sad because when you look at some of the messaging to to the people that are in crisis, they're like, well, think of your family. Well, that's actually a really bad thing to say that someone who thinks that they're a burden to their family, you know. So it's interesting that whether you're American or Afghani or, you know, South African, it's the same same message. The other thing that you said, you talked about visiting your father in the mosque. So I'm assuming you grew up in a, in a Muslim family. Did you stay within Islam or did you actually shift over to Christianity? Um, to be honest with you, um, I don't want to reveal it. Uh, because uh, I still got um, a family in Afghanistan, but uh, I'm, I've been a man of God. Yeah, me too. I mean, I think ultimately there's common denominators no matter what you name your religion, so we'll leave it at that. Yes, <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, because I still got family in Afghanistan, and, uh, you know, it's uh, risking their life. I don't want to put that in media, but uh, we can talk to it when I meet you in person, and... Uh, living uh, in God uh, and, you know, uh, studying the gospel of God have uh, really, really uh, enjoyable. Like at that time, I had money, I had the properties, I had buildings, I had a farmhouse, I had cars, bodyguards. Still, I was frustrated. Still, I was nervous. Still, I couldn't have enough sleep from the night. But when I totally give it all to God, and I turned to God, I live today in a rental house. And, you know, I work for the Mighty Oaks Foundation as a cultural advisor. And, uh, you, uh, you know, since I've been a man of God and I've given everything into the hand of God, the sole sovereign, and uh, he's been taking care of everything. And I uh, do not give a damn about nothing in my life. Because, um, you know, I have the best friend ever. Beautiful. Well, the other thing as well, as you talked about getting out into nature and with, you know, your, your sons, your brothers, etc. So that's another thing that I see is the reoccurring healing element is the community is a time in nature, um, daylight and exercise. So again, a universal truth in mental health. Yes, yes, of course, exactly, exactly. I mean, uh, uh, the, the, the nature and living in God and being a man of God is all happiness, confidence, and, uh, you know, you're realizing. I mean, first, uh, we need to study ourselves, that what we come from, how we come from, um, and, you know, what's the status. For every one of us, there is a purpose, that God has created us and he is using us. He is using us for the many different plan that he had for us. We were not even created that he had a plan for us in his mind before we were even created by him, by the Lord. So uh, I'm really happy that I found my soul and uh, I spent every day uh, uh, some time with him and like especially working in my tubes is a great opportunity. Every work starts with prayer. 
every work starts by the name of God. Every uh, thing that we do here, we start it, we end it. Even our, you know, our food, every food, like breakfast or lunch, if we eat uh, with the team guys or alone by ourselves, it's with prayers. It's, it's much blessing and much blessing. And I really, I really appreciate uh, God giving me this opportunity to serve here and help uh, the people who are really in need and sharing my uh, testimony with them. Uh, it gave people the opportunity to realize the difficulties and many different challenges in their life and find their souls and then become partner with their families and, you know, be respectful to their kids and, you know, and uh, take away all those burden or rack sacks or their past that's bothering them continuously. Like uh, uh, every day I check uh, my Facebook Messenger, there is a message. Somebody sent me from uh, Texas. Somebody sent me from Florida. Somebody sends me uh, from somewhere else. They're like, hey, thank you, Aziz. After hearing your testimony at Mighty Oaks, uh, or going to do through the main legacy program in Mighty Oaks, listening to your um, testimony, uh, it was really strong. I was able to find my son and my daughter, the one that who once abandoned me, and you know I had problems with my wife, but because of listening to your story, changed my life, and I take that as a reward. Because of me, if somebody's life has changed, it's a, another blessing, another reward from the Almighty God to me. Absolutely. I think it's another healing element when you're able to be in a place where you can start helping others. That also helps yourself as well. Yeah, yeah exactly. So for people listening, Mighty Oaks, where can they find that online? Uh, they can uh, go to our website, uh, www.mightyoaksprograms.com. They can find it uh, through our programs and uh, through our website, and they can, uh, you know, uh, enroll over there to one into one of our program, and uh, uh, they can easily come, and uh, we are here to help them. Brilliant. And then, if they want to reach out to you at all, are there any places online or social media that you exist now? Yes, I actually, they can follow me on uh, Azizula W. Aziz on uh, um, Instagram. And I'm as uh, Azizula space Aziz on Facebook. Brilliant. All right. Well, Aziz, I want to be, I want to thank you so much for being so generous with your time today. We've talked for almost two and a half hours. I will definitely get Chad back on so we can kind of expand a little bit more on his story. But you've given sure. us a completely different perspective, not only of, of the incredible evacuation of your specific family, but the service of you know your family to this country, the environment that you, you know, the pros, cons and, and everything else when it came to you know, your upbringing in Afghanistan. So I just want to thank you so, so much for being so generous with your time today. Yes, yes. you're welcome. You're welcome. My pleasure. My pleasure. Nice meeting you.